Today we're going to kind of go over a couple of news topics, then we're going to go into a Todd Sheets uh, retrospective. We're going to talk about each film, uh, what we can, and Todd Sheets will be joining us for that, so that'll be a lot of fun. And we're going to close the show with a review of Clownado. We finally did get to watch Clownado. And we're also going to review uh, Last House on Dead End Street, which actually was released recently, sort of, kind of. Yeah, it's part of like a double pack. Yeah, it was like an Easter egg. We'll talk about that all. But yeah, it's going to be an awesome show, um, so definitely stick around to the end. We're going to have our funny skits as usual. Man, what a hell of a time to be a corn farmer, huh? Oh, yeah. Indiana's suffering like big losses right, right now because the farmers can't plant their corn. Oh, really? Because of the rain. A lot of them have already had to dip into their insurance. Damn, I didn't hear about that. Yeah. It doesn't surprise me as much rain as we're getting. Yeah, some guy was telling me like every week now that goes by where they can't plant, they lose out on so much money percentage. Shit. They lose so much many crops for the year. That happened when all the workers went on strike for the... Um. The shipment thing, whenever they were transporting bananas and shit. They quit transporting bananas? It was like produce. It was like a strike at the docks. They were like, fuck bananas. Yeah. No, they just sat there, and then they all went bad. (laughs) All the fruit and stuff. What was their motive? Uh, More money. They needed more money. Yeah, union stuff. Well, you know. Bananas. That's not easy. B-A-N-A-N-A. Is there a state that's known for bananas? Cuba. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is that a state no i'm kidding uh i don't think there really is we don't really don't do bananas so a lot It'd be florida would be probably the closest you'd have but they don't they aren't known for that they're known mm, for their gator yeah. tail and their mm, I don't gator think, tail yeah i don't think they, they do but uh speaking of florida in horror news guys there is a uh new movie coming out about a uh, croc that kills people is mm. he a CGI croc? I think he was, wasn't he? Probably a CGI yeah. croc. He was not. He croc. was not a puppet. He's not a puppet. He's not. It's not robotic. Practical effects. Oh, that, that's well, maybe some, but maybe some of it is. I don't know. But uh, Alexander uh, Aja is directing it, so it's gonna be kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, it could be a mixed bag. The movie is called Crawl. It is uh, going to be a uh, produced by Sam Raimi. Alexander Aja directed uh, High Tension and a bunch of remakes. So yeah, like the Hills Have Eyes remake and yeah, that was in the trailer too. The Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, from the yeah. Like oh my god, when did Hill, Hills Have Eyes came out so long ago? It was like, like two thousand five. Yeah, four. Yeah, the remake. Yeah, like almost twenty. They're gonna reference a movie from almost twenty years ago. That's not very good on his track record, I guess. If they're referencing a movie from that long ago, what well, have you done, done a since lot. then? He's done a lot, I feel like, but I don't, you know, I don't have him pulled up or anything, but yeah, I mean, who knows? Could be good. Maybe he's good. Because High Tension was really good. I think we can all agree on that, but 
So, I don't know. The trailer looked kind of okay, I guess. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of your basic disaster movie. and It seemed like it was too jump serious out. for Things, the yeah. subject matter, mm-hmm. I feel like. It seemed very serious. Yeah. Boom. And then, like, somebody gets grabbed or something. Plays the boom. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. I don't think it'll live up to Alligator. Which oh, we God, saw, which no. we saw yeah. at the uh, the skyline. Mm-hmm. That alligator still holds up too. In that oh movie, yeah, for sure. Yeah, like that alligator. I was even like, how the hell do they do that? Yeah, I think there was parts where they used real alligators, and there's parts where they had like a robotic alligator, and there's a part where they had like a puppet alligator. I don't know. They must have. It looked really good. But it looks yeah, like you said. Even when it was I moving, was astonished. Yeah. When it was moving, I was like, how the hell? Yeah. But yeah, with. See, that's the thing with CGI. Um, like, when you're watching a movie with practical effects, you're like, how do they do that? You know, for me, mm-hmm. I think that's just kind of for movie buffs, though. Right, yeah. We look at it as, like, they're doing a magic trick. Yeah, right. like, how do they do that? But with CGI, it's like, there's no magic behind it. Just mm-hmm. Yeah, we know exactly how like, somebody did it. Yeah. Some guy sat at a computer and... Yeah, some well, sad poor I, I probably... Mean, dimly lit room sat there that's what i was gonna say too is a lot of the movie sets if you ever see the behind the the features behind the scenes or whatever on some of these newer movies the entire set is just green everywhere right there's actually a funny clip yeah where um it's a behind the scenes where um ray from star wars and harrison or you know han solo or whatever harrison ford yeah um they're sitting there in the millennium falcon cockpit and it's behind the scenes, so they haven't edited in the CGI. And it's from The Force Awakens when she says, I never knew so much green could exist in the whole galaxy. And it's a real line. It's in the movie. <laughs> oh, but yeah. in the behind the scenes, you see the, all the green. It cuts to the outside That's of the hilarious. cockpit, and it's all green. That's pretty funny. Yeah, so it's kind of like... It takes away the magic. I know. I know it's kind of pointless to, you know go on about cgi but mm, it's here to stay yeah yeah you know, there are a lot of directors like touch sheets who are kind of pushing back for the practical effects and we are the movies are getting a lot better at using more practical effects i would um, i would say so too yeah because there's a lot of kind of big budget movies kind of coming out where they're back to the practical effects yeah so, i mean i think some people some movies get backlash for having like complete cgi or like one character's all cgi mm-hmm. everybody else's live action i mean yeah so i feel like maybe that's part of it but and then they have like the live action stuff too where um they say it's like live action like with the lion king it's not live action no that yeah, look I, yeah like. I thought that was mm-hmm. no. it just looks detailed that's all it looks it's detailed CGI. yeah yeah so you know it's not like I'm really bitching about it. It's just like mm-hmm. that's why I prefer a movie like Alligator over this movie. Yeah, just because like I mean, not all CGI is bad. No, but I feel I like mean, and when you mix that, it with practical mm-hmm. effects, that's the best way. Oh, that yeah. is the best way. Because like it. Lord of the Rings, yeah, using the miniature sets with CGI is sort of like to help like I think uh, breathe life into it more. I think Game of Thrones does that too. With like. They film all over the world. Yeah. Yeah. So like that's cool. I I th- I think I think if somebody can use CGI without us knowing they're using it, that's what mm-hmm. you need to do. I think that's what's cool. Definitely. So yeah, I'm not I'm not a CGI hater at all, but mm-hmm. that's just how I feel about it. 
And of course, some movies too. You got to do it with like Godzilla. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, You'd have to. Don't always have an option. 2019. You got to use CGI. You can't have a guy in a rubber suit or animatronic. No. Yeah. Unless you're Toho. Unless you're Toho. That's because they're smaller. Whatever they want. Not much at stake there. Yeah. But uh, so we all went and watched Beats of Rage, which is uh. What, what it's a sequel to um yes FP, the fp F, fp so it's like fp2 beats of rage yeah fp2 beats of rage but they really advertise as beats of rage mm-hmm. that's what brandon said because um obviously it just helps them get it seen not too many more. people have seen f the fp yeah so they probably wouldn't they fp2 would probably turn them away we didn't watch fp and we totally got it and had fun with it so it's not like you really need to watch FP, but we got to see Beats of Rage at the drive-in along with Lieutenant Jangles, which was an Australian film comedy that recently came out. And uh, both films were a lot of fun. I think the best one out of the two for me was definitely Lieutenant Jangles, though. Definitely. It was hilarious. I really like to uh, to own that one. Yeah, I think I'm going to buy that one when it, when it does get released. Um, but... Uh, Beats of Rage, you can own the Blu-ray. I think you just need to contribute $30 to the Indiegogo. Probably yeah, one of those I things. Right. I think it's like maybe funding for the next one or yeah. something like that. Sometimes they also just have it set up to where they can keep doing it, even I, after it's been out. Yeah. Hmm. So they can sell pretty much. They use it as a merch store, but you I don't think you're really supposed to do that sometimes. Because you can, you can still contribute to like Clown Nato and movies like that. But Clown is still kind of being worked on it, I think. But, mm-hmm. um, so Beats of Rage, how would you explain that? It's kind of like a well, you gotta you gotta make the point that it's ultimately about DDR, yeah, a post-apocalyptic, or maybe not even post-apocalyptic, almost its own world mm-hmm. is created, where uh, DDR is something that's uh, very very esteemed and. Uh, looked highly upon now i'm sure everybody knows what pretty much everybody knows what ddr is dance dance revolution yeah yeah insanely popular yeah there's a lot of pop culture in it too so that kind of gives it the more post-apocalyptic world yeah Mm -hmm. exactly it's almost like these people were like super urban like weird sort of underbelly cultured people i don't know it's it's kind of very like they're all using words like dog and yeah it's actually kind of funny because I just realized when you were saying that, that whole DDR scene was kind of like its own world because it yeah. was insanely popular. And there's still a lot of people that love it, but the machines are really hard to find. Yeah. Yeah, so the movie's a lot of fun. It's like really high budget. At least it feels like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely feels like it. Towards the end, it seemed like the sets got a little lazy, I felt like. Like when they moved, so when they were inside doing the DDR and there's like lights and it was dark, it was way more aesthetic and cool. But when they were outside, you lost sort of that neon and all the lighting and everything, and it just seemed kind of boring. Yeah, it's just kind of people. I mean, yeah, staying You started outside. to kind of see, you started to kind of see like the outfits are really not as cool as you thought they were in the dark. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, had some really good shots of the landscape too. 
Yeah, yeah really where did. they shot that at. Yeah, I wonder too. And I like how they had that sort of Lord of the Rings intro where they had the map, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. That and they had like a girl narrating. That was a lot of fun. My favorite part about the movie though was the dialogue. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's kind of like Clockwork Orange in that it invented its own language, sort of. And it's batshit insane. You definitely understood what they were saying, but barely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was very, like, you, it was it was clever. It was just, like, clever dialogue and, like, a lot of fun. So, yeah, definitely good. And it was awesome seeing it at the drive-in. It was raining. Seems like the past couple times we've been at the drive-in, it's been raining. I bet they're hurting beds for that, too. So, one with the Indiana corn farmers. But, but we still have fun when it rains, so mm-hmm. definitely can still come out if it rains. Uh, and then Lieutenant Jangles. Harrison had to leave during Lieutenant Jangles, but me and Harrison, or me and Curtis stayed. And uh, it's like super, super comedy. I mean, it's like comedy of the max. Mm-hmm. Like the whole movie is just a joke. But it's hilarious. It's really good comedy. That's one example, too, where I don't mind the CGI because it's cheap CGI a lot of the times. And yeah. It's just so over the top and funny. So was it was it like a uh, a war movie or? Oh, it was a. Um, no. I I almost would think of it as like a Dirty like Harry, a, yeah, like a comedy version or something. Yeah, and the main Buddy character, kind of thing. the main character Lieutenant Jangles is like The guy is perfect. Whoever they got, that guy deserves some awards. I mean, his acting was really really good. Yeah, he got some. I think I read too, like independent awards. That's good. He deserves it. But uh. They're just like scenes where these two guys at the beginning were kind of have like a ping contest and they were <laughs> partners, but then the ping contest turned into them like them peeing on each other and laughing about it. They're like peeing into each other's mouths. And so I, I, it's just like, hell? it's almost like trauma comedy a little bit, but it's got the it's, dumb, I think it's better. It's got the dumb comedy. humor I like too, whenever the guy, not to give anything else away, but he's sitting in, he's like on the run or something and he's sitting in the, what looks like a cantina and then they say, uh. They find him, and, they, and he says, how'd you find me? And he says, you're at the Mexican restaurant. We saw your house is over there. Yeah, he goes, how'd you find me in Mexico? Yeah. And they're like, you're at a Mexican restaurant. We can see your house from here. So it's stuff like that. Um, and it's Australian, too. So I, I don't know It really know why. adds to the perk, though, because yeah. the dudes are all have the Austra- Australian accent, kind of. The accent kind of made him funnier. Yeah. I would say that for sure. But it was authentic. Oh, yeah. Authentic. Uh, the writing, the acting. He's just like your over-the-top, womanizer, like male-dominant mm-hmm. guy. But he's like, just looks like an average guy. I mean, he's not like built or anything like that. I think that's another thing that makes him more lovable. Is he just looks like anybody. But, yeah. Lieutenant Jangles definitely watched that. The poster's really cool, too. Oh, yeah. That's I really, really like the cool poster. One. They always have really cool posters for the new sensations, too. Yeah, I thought, um, yeah, like, uh, who makes those? Brooklyn Ewing. Yeah. From, uh... She Was So Pretty. Yeah. The director. Mm -hmm. Um, She makes the posters awesome. I love those posters better. You can buy the Beats of Rage soundtrack, too. I wish you could get the Lieutenant Jangles soundtrack. That's right. I forgot. Didn't Lieutenant Jangles have really good music? Yeah. Like, excellent. Yeah, because we were wanting to buy the soundtrack, but we couldn't find it anywhere. And they're both kind of like 80s kind of feeling, so I think it was like it was like the 80s kind of music, that, and that was great. I think it was like synth, maybe, or... Of course, it's cheap, easy stuff to make, but they also had some other, I think, rock songs or something, like... Yeah. 
Yeah, they were awesome. I just remember being blown away, and I think I looked on my phone while the movie was playing to li- to see if 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 I could buy the the soundtrack. And then also some big news: Swamp Thing getting canceled. We talked about. I think we talked about Swamp Thing last episode, right? Yeah, last episode we talked about. Hey, hey, it was coming out. Now mm-hmm. after one first episode, <laughs> it has been canceled. So they're gonna run the rest of the the first season, and then there will be no more seasons. Wow, that's that's pretty bad. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, it's weird because uh, it's actually had has had pretty good reviews so far. I've actually seen the first two episodes, and I thought they were really good. So um, yeah, it's kind of something that shocked people who were fans of that See, show. DC is failing with its Batman's and Supermans and stuff like that. They're really failing there, and they they fucked up Watchmen in my opinion but if they they have dc in my opinion has the best comics out of the two marvel and dc but their comics are the really dark moody stuff yeah Mm -hmm. like swamp thing Mm -hmm. sandman stuff like that watchmen they need to they need to focus more attention on that because superman and batman aren't going to be able to compete with the whole whatever universe Mm -hmm. marvel universe so they need to just give that up, quit with like the legacy movies and all that crap, and just yeah, gi- give a chance on Swamp Thing, right? Instead of just being like, yeah, give us. They should have done something. Sandman would have been perfect to do something with in the '90s. That was like so '90s. It was like grunge era, sort of emo, sort of. Well, that actually kind of reminds me because you're telling them the shift. Yet, I think they they just there's a big rumor that they're gonna close Vertigo, which is their publishing. That, that publishes a lot of the mature comics and the yeah. darker ones. Darker. V for Vendetta was Same Vertigo. Man. I don't know for sure if those were, but they seem if, like they probably would be. Yeah. I'm not sure off the top of my head. but Yeah, because those are the kind of movies that you're going to be able to come so. out with that appeal to me. People yeah. like yeah. me. You're not going to be able to compete with, you know, Aquaman can't compete with Spider-Man or Iron Man. Take In that terms group of, of. Huh? What would you say? Go ahead. In terms of appeal. Yeah. Which is kind of like, take the, take that demographic that hates and is rebelling against the Marvel Universe crap and give them something that they can be like, oh, hell, something they can be excited for. Swamp Thing would have been it. Uh, Definitely. They are actually, uh, HBO is actually going to start a Watchmen series in October. Oh, really? Yeah, so we'll, well, I mean, we'll see how it is. Oh, that yeah. must be the uh, the big Game of Thrones replacement then. Yeah, because they are looking for you know something to replace Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So big budget uh, show. Yeah, I've seen the trailer. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it pulls through. I'm kind of I mean, bummed though that they're doing something kind of superheroish. Yeah, I, I mean, I would rather them. What do you guys else. think of the Watchmen movie? Um, I much preferred reading the graphic novel. Oh God, um, yeah. That graphic novel was... is um, man, it's it uh, it like changes you. It's one of those things that changes you. I feel like yeah, like it's epic as hell. I haven't read the graphic novel. It's like dark, epic, clever. It, it's so smart of a graphic novel. Yeah, it's yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's more than a comic book. It's definitely like a experience. 
to read it. Yeah, I don't feel like the movie lived up to that. No. I mean, it's pretty big shoes to fill, but yeah, you don't get the same kind of feeling. No. Same for Watching. V for Vendetta. The yeah. graphic novel for that is like incredible, mm-hmm. but then the movie is just like yeah, which all are written bullshit. by uh, Alan Moore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. V for Vendetta, Watchmen, and actually the most recognized uh, Swamp Thing graphic novels too. Yeah. So, and he's kind of a he was a stickler for a while about giving up his rights to his stuff. Oh, really? To make movies on. He said. I think at one point he said he'd never let them make a movie, but really, maybe that's why Watchmen was so. I mean, came out so long afterwards. Yeah. But yeah, so the the Swamp Thing being canceled, there are a few theories. One of them was that uh, North Carolina was supposed to, where they film, was supposed to give them some big tax break, I guess. And uh, apparently, they <laughs> thought that maybe they there was some kind of error where they didn't get it. So that was one theory, but I guess that's been debunked already. Oh, okay. That's not the case. I hear um, too that uh, the producers were getting cold feet. Yeah, the producers. They started off as thirteen episodes, and they bumped it down to ten. Um, and then they aired one episode and canceled it. Yeah, so there was also a fear that you know he's a lesser known DC character. So that's probably actually it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of cold feet over that. They didn't want to commit too much to it. Yeah, and another thing is that uh, so DC is owned by Time Warner, and Time Warner got bought out by AT and T. And so I guess they're like re like structuring or whatever. Oh yeah, it's bad timing so. too, probably. Yeah, they're supposed to. Come they probably out got with some C- new CEO in there that was like, I'm gonna make a difference, you know. Yeah, this says hey, we need. That's what happened with HBO. That's what's going. That just happened. I think um, the the guy who runs, I don't know if it's HBO, but he's like a head of whoever owns HBO, and he said that he wants more com- content, but like less. Um, he just wants to. Value. He just wants to pump it out, basically, because yeah. they're going to do a streaming thing too. Then you get into that whole like soap opera world once you start losing production value and mm-hmm. stuff uh game of thrones i mean you could almost say that it was a little soap opera ish but it would have been like super super soap opera ish if they would have had a lower budget it oh, would have yeah. just been straight dark shadows kind of stuff going on but uh so yeah I, I i don't know i wouldn't agree with that i would think you would want to pump more money into it now that you're growing but I think I get where he's going as a business move because cable's not going to be around. It's going to go away soon. Yeah. So you want to build up your your library or original content, even though Game of Thrones is not original in terms of the book, but it is owned, I'm sure, the show at least, by HBO. Yeah. And they already fucked that up with Tales from the Crypt. They don't own Tales from the Crypt, not even the show. Who owns it, do we know? Um, I think there was some type of a deal with the Gaines estate, the publisher I'm, of the uh, comics, and they don't, that's why it's not on HBO Go. Can't watch it on there. I'm kind of glad I feel like HBO doesn't do the greatest job of releasing stuff as like a one big box set. 
Do you think? Because, like, that Tales from the Crypt box set's awesome. That they came out with. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? There must be some kind of thing, because I want to say it says WB on the back. I'll I'm thinking that, that might Warner be Brothers some thing. type of Time Warner, Warner Brothers thing. So maybe they just can't air it, because it's not on HBO Go. And I asked somebody on like one of the groups on Facebook about that, and he said something about uh, Annie Gaines or whatever from the Gaines estate. Said something about that, some type of a deal. It's kind of like um, the Are You Afraid of the Dark um, episodes. You yeah. couldn't get them. Oh like, yeah, the only way you could get them is like bootlegged. Yeah, but bootlegged. somehow the rights got bought out, or some some company got it, and then they're all getting released, and you can you can buy them all. Gotcha. So it's like I kind of like when that happens. I'm sure somebody gets fucked over when that happens, but probably as far as like I'm a big fan of these box sets that are coming out where it's like every single episode of Sanford and Son. Every yeah. single episode of Hey Arnold or Doug. Yeah. Me too, um, yeah. These are so hard to find. Now, Pete and Pete's kind of, for some reason, season three is like stuck in limbo. I don't know what the deal is with that. Yeah, it's really weird. So we still have a few Nickelodeon episodes from our childhood that are kind of stuck in jail. Grim Adventures of Bill and Mandy from Cartoon Network. Yeah, Salute You Shorts. I don't think you can oh, yeah, probably buy not. Salute There's You a Shorts. Lot. There's a lot of stuff that's just lost in limbo. There's not like, like a good Goosebumps set, I don't think. No, I, there is, I, like I, I know they've released know quite it. a bit of stuff, and like you know, I think it's on streaming Netflix. But oh, okay. But Part yeah, they had the not, not a complete box, you know. Yeah. That I know of, anyway. I was talking so. Harrison about the Beavis and Butthead collection because it's the same way. Even the complete collection is not complete. Oh really? It's missing the music videos because of licensing. Oh man, that would suck. Yeah, it only has some of them. And then it has, uh, and it's missing entire episodes because Mike Judge doesn't like some of the episodes, so he took oh, them out. Oh, gosh. Uh, sometimes when the artist makes something, they should not be able to touch it again. And just stand by it, yeah. yeah. You made it. Sorry, bub. Yep. Yeah, but that it. does bring up a, that uh, Are You Afraid of the Dark is being rebooted. So yeah. I'm not sure about that, how that'll be. I'm kind of glad, depending, is it going to be, is Nickelodeon going to air it? I believe, yeah, Nickelodeon's going to air it. So, I'm kind of happy so. about that, because, like... Oh, it's a for series? For one, it's a... Yeah, it's, okay, it's going to be, you. like, a, a I new, knew the like, old one was a series. I just didn't know if they were turning it into a movie, or... No, I think it's going to be a reboot of the series. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Like it's gonna be they could have made, like, a ghost bump, Goosebump shit. Yeah. That would have yeah. been stupid. But, like, so... With TV shows, when they remake it, I don't care. That's fine. Totally get that. Now, if they're going to like remake episode by episode, that'd be stupid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think it's kind of cool because like, if Nickelodeon is going to show it, I love that there's a place kids can go, Nickelodeon, and like get introduced to horror. Mm-hmm. Even even though it's very safe and it's yeah. like, it'll probably even be more tame than what we had. Because um, some of those Goosebumps or Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, I'm more of an Are You Afraid of the Dark kind of guy. I don't know about you guys. I, I preferred All You Afraid of the Dark. Uh, I definitely do. I was, yeah. It's a Canadian show. Um, it was really, really good. I I thought Goosebumps was fucking stupid. But Are You Afraid of the Dark, I watched that shit 
every time it came on. But, My uh, horror yeah. show would have been something closer to um. It's not even really horror. It's just darker. Would have been something like Invader Zim or Grim yeah. Adventures of Billy and Mandy. That's why I want them to release the box set. That's right, straight horror yeah. or comedy uh, cartoon. Yeah. Did you guys ever watch Eerie Indiana? No, I've heard a lot about that one though. Yeah, I've watched a few of episodes of it. Yeah, it's cool, and it's based in our state. So yeah. that's cool. But like, um, are you afraid of the dark? So the difference between it and Goosebumps is Goosebumps was really like always had some stupid ass ending. Yeah, there's always a really lame twist at the end. The perfect example would be there's this one where this kid goes to camp, and there's where there's this werewolf. And it seems kind of cool, like, oh, damn, this is cool. It's almost like a slasher film. His friends start missing, go, going missing and stuff. Well, at the end, um, everything turns white, and all that remain are the people. And the kid's like, what's going on? And his parents are like, you survived the test. You're ready for Earth. And they were living on Mars. <laughs> you know, so it's just stupid all, shit yeah. like that, you know. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of that. It was almost sci-fi more. And it yeah. was really kiddy. But for some reason, Are You Afraid of Dark seemed like growing up, like you shouldn't be watching it. Oh, yeah. I absolutely Hardcore. know the feeling. Even I the w- intro, I remember that. Uh, the intro oh, was yeah. Those little- uh-huh. I would actually get scared of the intro as yeah. a kid. Like it was legitimately spooky. Yeah, I, I'm thinking I grew up on kind of more the the tail end of Are You Afraid of the Dark because I don't remember a whole lot about it. When I was watching it, it was... I was still in Lantern Hills, and it was like every Saturday. It was was either Friday night or Saturday night, but it was always like one episode a week at a certain time. Right when it started getting dark, I have some of the fondest memories of that, just being in my room (laughs) alone. My parents didn't really care if I watched it at all, but you had to turn the lights out, you know. It was a big deal, so... I, I want kids now to experience that and have, like, an alternative for horror, you know? Because that's, yeah. that's one of the reasons I got into horror, for sure, was already Pray the Dark. So, I think it's cool. I'm okay yeah. with it. I hope it's good. I hope it's not, like, super lame and, like, yeah. all the episodes take place at daytime. And Don't fuck it up and give horror a bad name. <laughs> Don't drive kids away from horror. Yeah. Right. Don't have stupid goosebump endings. Get Canadian. Get Canada to make it again. What is that, a little boot? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, speaking of movies from our childhood, which I don't know if you guys... I grew... It was like syndicated television, I guess. So it was like reruns and shit. But I did watch a lot of Banana Splits back in the day. Actually, uh, I did too. Yeah. Really? I, I don't know how that worked. I, I think it all. played on I, Boomerang or something yeah, like that. Yeah, there was. I think I had like some... Yeah, I think Boomerang. It was like the classic Cartoon yeah. Network. Yeah, basically, I love that. I love that uh, that channel. Yeah. But yeah, I go on. Yeah, it was when it first started, Boomerang. I remember. Right. Yeah. But they were yeah. playing like Banana Splits, and my dad had actually had a lot of the episodes recorded beforehand too. So I was wa- he would watch it a lot too. But uh, they're making it. It was kind of a weird show. It was like sort of like Chuck E. Cheese mascot type thing there's like a name for those people hannah barbera or something yeah uh-huh, hannah barbera right yeah and they were like 60s 70s i think that i think banana splits was more like 70s i think it, i read it was 68 to 1970 okay. so it was a brief period there only a couple of years yeah and the show is kind of weird uh it didn't really center around the banana splits it centered more around like skits it was more like a skit show like 
there's different it's almost like mad tv a little bit where it was like there was different recurring okay yeah each week so um but yeah so i watched the intro and the outro and it did look kind of weird and creepy a little yeah i've heard that Um, but yeah they're doing like a new uh, movie was it called the banana splits movie i think it's just just, just yeah yeah but it's a horror movie is the catch yeah and it's almost kind of got that um five nights at freddy's type Mm -hmm. of feel oh yeah so i think it looked pretty cool actually i did too i thought it was kind of funny like i got it it's got a r rating for for uh gore and yeah violence which is always a good sign yeah yeah Yeah. especially being a sci-fi or it is a sci-fi technically it's a sci-fi original but it's i don't know is it going to play in theaters at all i don't know it did say it was premiering. I doubt it. it did yeah, say, probably not. It did say premiering on sci-fi. Okay, so yeah, so, it's a sci-fi movie. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. How, I wonder how they got the rights to, to do that. I'll probably get to watch it on Sling, so that's cool. Yeah. Hold on. It's possible that uh, that sci-fi might be like... Owned by all the same. Uh, yeah, owned by like a parent company that also owns um, Boomerang. Yeah, that's or, like, probably... one of those channels that yeah, might own Yeah, you're probably it. right. But uh, yeah, no, I think... I'd watch it for sure, especially like... If it's on sci-fi, it'll be like uh, that new Leprechaun movie. Mm-hmm. So I, was just I, I just watched it. Yeah. You know, I just I was able to just watch it at home for free. Yeah, that's cool. So that'll be nice. Um, I think we all watched the Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which is confusing as hell. Like, why did they name it that? Because there's already a Godzilla King of the Monsters. Yeah, it was the remake of. Well, it wasn't really a remake. It was just a re-edit of gojira with raymond burr that is confusing so i thought that was weird anyways i just wish they had changed a few things to make it sound kingish without just ripping it yeah but yeah yeah i agree but um i really enjoyed the new godzilla um it kind of got bad critic review which made me think i'd probably like it yeah uh, it did people were saying stuff like too much monster fighting and it's like good yeah Yeah. right i mean that's what we're here to see right to see i thought the 2014 version really suffered because there wasn't enough monsters man right yeah right godzilla didn't show up to like the very end but uh with this one there's a lot of what i liked about it is the characters the side i it's not really a side story but like the human story was actually i actually enjoyed it i like uh sirizawa I guess it must have been like his because Sirizawa was the guy in the first one with the eye patch that invents the uh, oxygen bomb yeah if you remember him but so this must have been like his great grandson or something like that but he's like a Japanese scientist and that scene where he goes into uh, I guess it was Atlantis right heavily hinted at yeah Yeah. it's heavily hinted at something like that and he sacrifices himself. That was kind of like a throwback to the first one. And it was also like really kind of cool because he really liked both Godzilla and Sirizawa in this one. So it was kind of cool to... I, I don't know. I got chills during that scene with the music. And the... Did you both grow up watching a lot of Godzilla? Yeah, I yeah. definitely did. You did? Yeah, both me of and you? Harrison definitely did. I owned, I think, the uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla VHS. And I'd seen Mecha Godz- Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, but that was really about it. And the Raymond Burr version later. 
Yeah, so my my dad definitely was the one that got me into it. He watched just Godzilla King of the Monsters, nothing else. He didn't he he didn't like any of the other movies, just Godzilla King of the Monsters, that's it. Really? That's uh, bizarre. So I watched a lot of that growing up, but then later I started getting into the uh, probably like 12, 13, I'd say. I started getting into like wanting to watch all the ones. Hmm. And it was around that time that Gojira kind of came over here. Like, we didn't really even have Gojira until they put that DVD out that came with it as an alternative version to King of the Monsters. I heard even the, um, you know, back then in the 60s and 70s from people that I know that even just seeing some of those movies could be pretty difficult. Or getting some of the VHS, too. Yeah, because, like, you got to... If you're a true fan, you want to hunt down the Japanese originals. And the Japanese originals are actually a lot different. Not as big as the difference as Gojira and King, Godzilla King of the Monsters. But they're big enough as a, of a difference that you want to, uh, wa- you know, like watch them and collect them all. So it's hard to get the Japanese versions and the American versions all together. Of the first run, I think they call that the Showa series. Yeah, I actually saw somebody give uh, one of those Godzilla packs like a two, like a one star or a two star review on Amazon because people are dumb. I guess he thought it included all of them in English or something. Like he he wanted to show his kids or something. Well, that one pack should come. The Toho pack should come with the English dub, English subbed, the original Japanese. And people are just dumb. He probably they just didn't know how to access. You exactly. Know, he just he's a he's a dumbass. Am don't listen to Amazon reviews. Yeah, that's the thing I always tell people: read the damn review. Don't just look at the stars. Well, it's gonna have it, on the special on the it, when you buy it, right? You're gonna be able to look at the specs, and it's gonna mm-hmm. tell you if it's subbed or dubbed. And I do like how Amazon now has that Q and A section. Yeah. But anyways, back to Godzilla King of the Monsters. Um. I call it. I call him Swole Godzilla. It's like Godzilla with his huge neck, you know. Oh, like yeah, yeah. I'm not a big fan of that look, but I'm starting to get used to it. Yeah. What'd you think of Ghidorah? I thought Ghidorah looked the best. I th- he's I agree. ever looked yeah. in a movie. He's always kind of got that stupid, weirdly orchestrated puppet heads going on. True. You yeah. Know? He was legitimately terrifying in this new one. Yeah, mm-hmm. they could actually. When he pull was like perched there with his wings out, you know. Yeah, he was pretty badass. You know, it's weird that movie, how they mentioned that there are seventeen titans, and then they show yeah. like five of them in the movie. Yeah, what do you guys mm-hmm. think of the titans that weren't Godzilla originals? Um, I don't know. Kind of, kind of weird. There's that yeah. like giant woolly mammoth, like ape, ape guy. Yeah. But but at the same time, um, there's a cool, lot of stupid original ones too. Yeah, like that's you have true. the giant praying mantis and yeah. If you remember Minya, oh yeah, Minya's <laughs> yeah. So He's I mean, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say. Oh, they look stupid because most of them in the past have looked stupid too. Oh, Mothra yeah. even is just a giant moth. Yeah, just yeah. Um, I was actually gonna say Mothra looks awesome in this too. Yeah, I thought Mothra looked cooler cooler than usual. And I don't know if you guys caught this. It was really subtle, and I haven't heard anybody else talk about it. Um, so, you remember Mothra? The original movies, they had these. Mothra had these guardians. It was these two sisters. They were twins. I remember that, like and the little were, midgets. They were little midgets. Mm-hmm. So in the in this movie, 
uh, that Japanese chick that was really Sirizawa's sort of like close, mm-hmm. close friend colleague. Yeah. Uh, she they showed a picture on her desk for like a second, and it was those twins. Oh yeah, so I she's a that. relative. I do remember of that. them for sure. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, that was cool. I thought Mothra's intro to the fight was awesome. How she shot those, she kind of shot that web at Ghidorah's heads, and his head stuck to the. That building. was cool. That's like, the like big budget. Like made a lot of cool things that you wish you could see in older Godzilla fights. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. poss- like you uh, wish they could, be, they would be able to pull it off. Yeah, they would look. Uh, you wouldn't be able. I don't even know how you would do something like that with the puppet, with the Ghidorah, plus the spider web. Right. Yeah. Like they tried back then, but you know, it was always like goofy. Goofy. It seemed like somebody with a spray can almost. You know. Yeah. Spraying silly string, but now it's like oh, actual. Yeah. It has more life stuff. to it, like it's just like sticking. Um, so I did watch uh, James Ralph's. Is that right? The Angry Video Game Nerd. Oh yeah, James Rolf. Yeah, I watched his review of Godzilla King of the Monsters. Completely disagree with him. What did um, he say about it? Well, he said he he did the whole thing that a lot of reviewers now, where they don't ever say anything, just flat out. They're not just like flat out hate things or bash things. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like oh. It, it, it was good for what it was. They use like real passive aggressive type terms, you know. But he was saying like there wasn't enough monster building crushing, which I can kind of agree with that one. There wasn't like a th- th- every Godzilla movie. There's always one of those dojos oh, that yeah. get like destroyed. Uh huh. He was saying that uh, he didn't like how the fights took place at night. What I have huh. to say about that, he thought it was kind of a cheap way out with the CGI or something like that. Here's here's why they film at night and they will always film it, the fight scenes at night. Think about WWF back in his glory days, right? It was always dark, right? Around everything was dark. Mm-hmm. All you saw was these lights on the fight. It was kind of like your attention needs to be here. Sort yeah. of thing. Uh, when you do fight sequences in the daytime, it's really distracting and comes off goofy. Uh, so when they do it at nighttime, it's because they really want to focus all the attention in the center of the screen. They don't care about anything else. Uh, the rain was cool. Ghidorah had sort of this, was always in this constant storm type thing going on. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I, I liked it. I think if they would have done it at daytime, it would have been a little goofy. They showed Probably, Rodan yeah. at daytime. Yeah. Which was cool, but it, it came out a couple kind of flat, though. Yeah. With the fight scene, too, you got a lot more going on. So you right. can't really do it at daytime. Showing Rodan, that's fine, but mm-hmm. even just if it's Godzilla versus Rodan, but Ro- you had at the end of ending fight scene, you had Rodan, Godzilla, Mothra, King Ghidorah. Yeah. In one capacity or another, you had all those four of them, and it's one of those things too with uh, you know, it just doesn't it just doesn't translate well, I guess, the daytime stuff today. Yeah, uh, not all the time. In in the past, the daytime fight sequences have come off goofy. Now I like the goofy Godzilla mm-hmm. films. One of my favorite Godzilla films is actually Godzilla vs. Megalon, which is like the goofiest one. Yeah, so it's not, probably. It's not and that, but like this. And that's kind of where the the idea though comes with, you know, they have to do it because, like you said, you don't want to distract. You don't want it to look goofy because you're dealing with a two hundred million dollar budget. Yeah, and you don't want. Um, 
there's there's some horror movies that take place during the daytime they don't work as well horror movies which i know this isn't a horror movie but horror movies don't work in the daytime yes a lot of the time i mean there's some out there that do and they make it work if they're really really good but well i was actually going to bring that up too um since you said that jeepers creepers one and two were almost completely at night now i don't care what you think about the first two they were popular all that but if you watch this the third one that they did it was a much lower budget and you can see that they filmed in the day on purpose because they probably didn't want to do the lighting stuff it was almost all at all during the day on jeepers creepers 3 i thought i thought two was during the day when they were on the bus right um whenever the actual creature starts attacking it's at night oh okay okay and same with the first one and then the third one all day i don't think it i don't think there's even a night scene it's, it's terrible stay away from jeepers it's creepers that director 3. that messed around with that kid yeah i think <laughs> i think he returned for the third one yeah he did that's awful gave him a shitty budget too but whatever yeah kid littler so i when i was listening to him talk about it i was like just completely disagreeing with everything they were saying one of the kids he was with even said like i never walk out of a theater disappointed i like every movie i watch but he didn't like this one i was like that's probably your problem if you like every movie that's been out in the theater recently yeah I think some people too, like you said, the critics was, you know, lack of character development or lack of story and all that. Are they ever going to like a Godzilla movie? Yeah. Did they like the 2014 version? I really don't know. I hated the 2014 one. They probably liked that one. <laughs> well, the, well, Godzilla yeah. didn't go on a big monologue or something. He needed an accent. Yeah. Oscar bait. Yeah, if Godzilla was played by Meryl Street. Oh, yeah. He had something. <laughs> But yeah, like you said, I think the monster fights were satisfying enough in themselves to yeah. make it a good movie to go. go I agree see. with and they James. Did cut to the, they did cut to the uh, humans a lot, but yeah, I felt I like that say. worked. I felt like that helped keep the pacing going. I mean, obviously, if you just have monster fight, monster fight, monster fight, it's going to yeah. it's not gonna get boring, but it's just going to kind of like slow the pacing down. So question, who would you like to see as a titan in future Jet Jets? Jaguar. For sure, <laughs> they'll never do it. But no, they'll that would never be cool. Jet Jaguar. It cool. wouldn't make any sense. Neither would Mecha Godzilla. Yeah. Why not Mecha Godzilla? Because he's completely like robotic. So it's like the Earth is supposed to have created these things. No, it could make sense though if you tied it in with that uh, the dude oh, from yeah. Game of Thrones. They could bring because he back. could he could somehow build something. Yeah, they could yeah, bring him back. He wouldn't be a Titan, but he would be in it. Yeah. Um. So it ends with. I mean, I guess we've already pretty much spoiled the movie. Yeah, it's yeah. fun to spoil guys. Spoiler alerts. Yeah. There's a lot of monster fights, and there's eco-terrorists. Yeah, anyway, so the guy's like an eco-terrorist, and he's the dude from Game of Thrones, the whatever, old dude. Oh, yeah, the guy, the guy that plays Tywin. Like yeah, Tywin, and he's he's great. I love him. Oh, that's where I recognize him from. But, yeah, um, yeah he's like an eco-terrorist, so him and um, the main scientist chick, they want to... She's a girl from Conjuring, and conjuring too okay yeah i don't know her name they uh they basically like want to save the planet or something through just by destroying it and coexisting with the monsters but yeah anyway so the eco-scientist guy he's like a terrorist or he's not a scientist but he's a terrorist kind of yeah and the plan gets fucked over because of uh king Ghidorah. he's not really a, a t- like a titan 
Although he still wants King Ghidorah to fuck things up. And so she runs, she, she saves the day. And then basically, um, yeah, basically, so, so it ends and then, you know, the, the eco-scientist dude, the, the terrorist guy, he's, he finds, uh, King Ghidorah's head or something. He like bought it from a black market. And so there, you could tie that in. Yeah, absolutely. It would be difficult he's now. He's got that, a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. They, they are, I mean, yeah, he, he took out all those outposts. Right. Antarctica and all that other shit. Yeah, that's definitely teases a Mecha Ghidorah. Yeah, that's true. Mecha Ghidorah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. why couldn't he do a Mecha Godzilla? And obviously, he probably couldn't do one since they have, they teased Mecha, God, Mecha Ghidorah already. Yeah. But. I would have actually liked to see uh, Angerus. Even though he's kind of a punching bag for the other monsters usually, but uh, I would like to see him. He's kind of Godzilla's. Uh, he's Godzilla's first. Godzilla's opponent. buddy. Yeah, first opponent, and then later on, he's one of. Yeah, one of his uh, regular, you know, allies in battle. They seem they seem to make some other kind of Titan. I I didn't really get a. You don't really get a good glimpse at it. There's some other kind of like giant. Dinosaur. Thing with like. I almost thought it was Angerus for a second, but it's not. It's something, some other kind of giant dinosaur with, like, stuff growing out of out of his back. So, yeah. I mean, I think it is cool, Geigen too. Gigan would be cool, too. Yeah, that would be like cool. Geigen. Um, Obviously, we all want the Smog Monster to reappear, you know. Oh, yeah. Adora. I wanted a Destroyer. 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 Yeah, Destroyer is the... really cool, yeah. Destroyer is really cool. That's actually one of my favorite movies, Godzilla vs. Destroyer. Yeah, I I liked it. Uh, I I also liked how that one guy was studied animals, and that later came into play to help people. Out. That's why he was able to have all that exposition where he's explaining all this stuff. Is because main protagonist man is that yeah, you're talking about? Yeah, because he's he, at the mo- at the beginning he's studying those wolves mm-hmm. and like listening to their audio, and that plays into the whole thing later where they're trying to manipulate the audio to kind of uh tell the rope kind of control the titans a little bit so i thought that was kind of cool tie-in usually these characters have some profession that doesn't ever help later down the road and doesn't do anything clever right they're just like oh he's a scientist what kind of scientist just scientist he's scientist man he's a scientist so uh i agree a little bit with james rolf going back to that real quick the only comp- a little bit the only complaint i had was i would have rather have seen some kind of at least near the end some type of more of a choreographed fight because like like i like i shared with you guys uh, like there's a there's a thing in in king kong versus godzilla where you can clearly like you can see a lot of cool stuff going on you know, King Kong grabs a tree and he shoves it in Godzilla's mouth and then, mm-hmm. like, eat it. And Godzilla rolls down, or King Kong rolls down a hill, bonks his head on a rock. But yeah. I was fine with it overall. It was a much better they sequel. They definitely improved, yeah. De- big improvement. And the director is awesome, too, because he directed Krampus and Trick or Treat. And oh, I actually yeah, like right. Millie Bobby Brown. That's kind of kind of a hip thing to hate on her for some reason, but I like her. She's all right. Yeah. Her face, I don't know. She's all right. Her face. Her face is kind of like her. She's got like a blank expression a lot of times. Oh, okay. 
So, moving on, there was I know we talked about scary stories to tell in the dark previously. Yeah. But there was a new trailer that kind of clears some questions we had that we wanted to talk about real quick. Um, I know we were thinking it was going to be an anthology. Doesn't seem like it's the case. It's basically no. Goosebumps. Yeah, it's basically what Goose they did with Goosebumps. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was kind of. I thought the trailer was better than the original one. It was kind of interesting. I'd definitely watch it, but uh, like I said, I have more interest in it than I did before, and I have a little bit more hope for it. But it's gonna be bad. You know, it's gonna be bad. Yeah, it's I knew it was bad. gonna be bad day one. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not gonna be surprised. Yeah, I would have kind of liked to see it as an anthology. Like we were, we were just talking about. Uh, yeah. About how, yeah, we weren't really sure what it would be, but. I would rather just have quick five, ten minute, or even fifteen minute um, skits. Yeah, I would like that too. It seems like, so it seemed like when I, what I gathered from the trailer is this girl has a grandma who had some books, and I forget what they were, they were called Madam something books or whatever, but they're almost like these diaries or something. And she starts to read it. It's almost like death by dialogue, where the story. When she starts reading the stories, they start to happen. Yeah. Um, goosebumps. Pretty lame. Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Pretty very boring. Goosebumps. Pretty uh, lazy, but. And it revolves a around a story like, oh my god, it's the guy from the story. Because goosebumps yeah. did so well, I'm sure. <laughs> you know. Yeah. They even did a sequel to that though. Yeah. Maybe it did do did. good. I don't know about the sequel though. There's a movie that I thought was just Goosebumps again. Um, uh, Eli Roth did it. It was called The House with the Clock in Its Wall. Oh, yeah. That was seriously just Goosebumps again. It even had... It uh, even had all the same characters. Jack Black. Jack Black, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, what? So, anyways. I'm not excited, but we'll probably watch it. Yeah. I did think it was cool, the uh, that Scarecrow, seeing him get his revenge... Yeah, that was cool. Up. How those high school kids with the uh, Letterman jackets were walking around the cornfield. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, so that'll be cool. I'll probably have a little bit of fun with it, but not something I'm gonna like mm-hmm. promote or anything like that. But yeah, that's all the news we had. Uh, we're gonna we're trying to keep it a little short since this Todd Cheats retrospect is really gonna take some time to delve into. Uh, he's got a lot of films. We, we haven't seen all of them, though, so the ones we haven't seen, we'll just try to give a quick, you know. There it a lot is. Of, a lot of them are shorts. Yeah. It's actually a little difficult to find the full list of Todd Sheets films, so this might be, this might not be everything, but uh, when Todd Sheets joins us, we'll uh, see if he has anything to say or add, but with the with Todd Sheets being on, uh, don't think of it as an interview. I really don't want it to be like that. It's just kind of Todd Sheets hanging out with us and talking about his movies. Yeah, stay tuned for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm not sure how much he's going to talk about his early films. What's he always told you his first film was? It's, um, I think he always considers, I almost want to say Zombie Bloodbath, but it, technically Zombie Rampage. But I think he does consider... Zombie Bloodbath is first. Because I think that's the one that first got like any type of real distribution, maybe. I'm not sure. Yeah, so I don't know if we can expect him. 
he's never really been much to talk about like goblin and prehistoric bimbos in armageddon city and stuff like that so i'm not sure how that's gonna go actually because he's not a fan of those movies um i was talking to him about nightmare asylum for 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 some time and it seemed like seemed like we were talking he was kind of answering questions i had about it so we'll see so we're not promising anything. It might just be movies after Zombie Bloodbath. Which sucks because Goblin's awesome. Sorority Babes. Or not Sorority Babes. Um, Prehistoric Bimbos and Armageddon City's awesome. Nightmare oh, I get, I get why he says that's his first then. Because the other ones he made before are... Um, like when he was really young. Yeah. Okay. He's kind of a... Sh- well, I don't know. He just like disowns the early movies yeah so i bet it is zombie bloodbath yeah but anyway stay tuned for that we're gonna take a break hi this is joe godden owner of the skyline drive-in and you're listening to flipside cinema little known fact flipside cinema was the very first podcast ever all the way back in 1990 Everyone has a secret nightmare about the ugliest way to die. Whatever yours may be, now it lives. What are you yelling about? If you take them in, you'll be taken in, because there is no way to survive the devil times five. Got some big movie news that you're hearing for the first time on Flipside Cinema. It's Monster Fest 2019, man-made monsters at the skyline drive-in we have the official lineup the show is on august 23rd and 24th it's two nights of dusk till dawn monster madness this year we're featuring some really heavy hitters on friday dr jekyll and mr hyde the 1931 paramount original plus to be announced at a further date reanimator 4D Man and the Alligator People. That's the Friday lineup. And on Saturday, it gets even bigger. Frankenstein, the original 1931 Universal Classic. Plus, to be announced at a further date. Please stay tuned for updates. Plus, a 35mm print of The Fly from 1986, Cronenberg Classic. The Hammer Island of Terror from 66, and Man Made Monster from 1941. Good classic Universal film. That's all in the two days of Super Monster Movie Fest. This is the first time me and Curse are hearing this, too. Yep. 
I'm over here about to pass out. <laughs> We're back, and uh, we're just going to dive right into this Todd Sheets retrospective. Um, I guess before we get started, we can talk about Todd Sheets real quick. Uh, he started making films in uh, 1984. Uh, they were short films. I'm not sure what his age was at that time. He have been really young. Yeah, he, he must have been pretty young. But um, he's sort of known for what, what I... One of the reasons I really like Todd Sheets is because even though he had no money, uh, I think I think most people in his position would have just been like, all right, let's keep it simple. Uh, let's just make a movie about this and let's just stick to what we can do, what we have available. But Todd Sheets would like say, fuck that. Let's put a, you know, giant woolly mammoth in this scene, you know. So he's always yeah. kind of like pushing the boundaries and just doing a big budget movie anyways and uh that's that's i get a lot of fun out of his earlier films for that reason and uh and you guys actually made kind of a a, a film kind of like how he would have probably yeah so i got a soft spot for him he's a really nice guy too I, the first time i actually met him was just a year ago i didn't know who he was or any of his movies until i was introduced to him in september of last year actually so if it seems like we don't know much about all this stuff probably we don't but we're gonna do our best i i've actually have been watching a lot of his stuff uh, a lot of his earlier stuff too so he's got a his first short was the evil of one three two seven and uh it was just a six minute film then he's got blood of the undead which was kind of a running series there for a while, but it's just a 12-minute uh, movie. Then Blood of the Undead, the Unwanted, 32-minute th- film. So he's got he's got kind of a long list of uh, shorts, and I think all those are available on Sheets of Gore, which is a compilation DVD set that's came out. Who put that out? Do you remember? It was, it was uh, SRS, so SRS. you can look them up. It's Subrosa Cinema yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah, and you bought those, right? No, sheets I don't own the Sheets of Gore. Okay. I wanted to, but... Okay, but you that is something that you can get. And it's get. limited, so... Yeah, check Grindhouse Video. Um, They might have it. Maybe. Maybe. Because Sub Rosa, I remember those films in particular, they weren't really distributed much. Okay. It was kind of more of a site thing. We might just have to visit the site then. But, uh, yeah, a lot of those are available. We're not going to go over every single one of them, but... Uh, I haven't seen them, so. And I think he has. I think he has more short films than that because some of them were experimental too. It sounded like on the sheets of gore. Yeah, so so it'd kind of be fun to go back into his early, early history and really get into it. But where I started watching it um, would be prehistoric bimbos in Armageddon City. Um, this is one of the films that is in the Mill Creek. Uh, 50 movie box set collection called uh, Decrepit Crypt of Nightmares. Uh, this is a must-have if you're a Todd Sheets fan because it comes with uh, six of his films, uh, his early films. You got Zombie R- Rampage on there, and you've Which got. Looks like that was his first feature length. Uh, you got Prehistoric Bimbos in Armageddon City. Uh, you got Nightmare Asylum. Uh, let's see here. 
I know Goblin's on here. Uh, Dominion's on here. Uh, he, They also have uh, Madhouse and Nightmare Asylum. So this is an awesome set to get. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. I was able to find my copy for 30 bucks, but I've seen them go anywhere from like 80 to $200. But you have to go on eBay because it's out of print. Uh, there's actually a lot of cool movies on here. This is kind of, I call this the kind of shot on video. Mill Creek 50 movie collection. It's got a lot of shot on video. It's also got a lot of shot on digital, like with what was that, DVR kind of movies? Yeah, DVR. Uh, one one really cool movie is Terror Tunes, which is uh, Joe Castro huh. directed that. And it's kind of like a crate. Yeah, I, I, I compare it to Clay Fighters, the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's really fucking weird huh? and awesome. So I see all those movies that you mentioned are all kind of early 90s. So is that box kind of mostly yeah, that time Yeah, it comes with a lot of shot what? on video movies. Yeah. That's what's really cool. So it would be I would be interested. the 90s. I and... would be interested to know, does, is there a date on the box for when it was in production? 2007. Okay. And I remember seeing it back in the day. And I remember, I remember back then, I didn't know any of the movies. So I was kind of like, eh. Yeah. But back then you could have got it for like 20 bucks, 15 bucks, 10 bucks, you know. But now that's out of print. It's it commands a pretty high price and it's hard to find. Uh just be patient. Don't spend $200 for it obviously. Be patient. Yeah. You'll, you'll eventually see it for like $40 somewhere. It'll pop up. But uh and one the 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 seller I bought it from had a few copies left, so they might who knows? They might have some. You might see it pop up some other time too, even if it doesn't ever go on sale. But if you really want it, just wait and see, because I know Zombie Bloodbath is out of print. the The trilogy pack from Camp Motion Pictures. Yeah. But they're planning on doing a reprint. Yeah. With, with Wild Eye. So my uh, theory, which has always worked for me, is, um, first of all, don't spend a shit ton of money. It's really stupid to spend a lot of money on something like a movie. Um, but wait, because if the movie is good enough, if the movie is actually something that people want and is something that is good and is something that deserves to be watched by you, it'll get reprinted. If they did it 90% once, of the time, if they did it once at some point, they'll do it again. Yeah. yeah. So just be patient. I did that with, a uh, Savage Streets. I almost, almost came to the point of just spending the eighty dollars to get the dvd for it but i waited and then you know scorpion releasing came out with a uh or no ronin came out with a uh reprint of it so it'll happen just hang in there uh we definitely don't want to talk about these films and have you want to watch them with no way of watching them so they're out there you'll be able to watch them goblin i think is on youtube Anyways, Goblin's pretty easy to access, I'm pretty hmm. sure. Uh, I, and Todd sells the VHS copies of it, right? Yeah, um, so yeah, I think he does. And they're, they're the originals, right? They're the original press releasings. A lot of people were kind of giving crap that yeah, yeah. they were so, reprints or whatever. He always calls that the Wild Wild West days. Yeah. When everybody was doing anything and everything they can you know yeah all right so with uh prehistoric bimbos in armageddon city um 
that's the first one on this list because this list is in chronological order. Uh, that's the first one on this list that I've seen. Uh, I love prehistoric bimbos in Armageddon City, and I kind of showed Harrison Curtis the movie, but like fast forward it through it. Yeah. So you guys kind of got a glimpse of it. Um, I think we rocked out to that main theme song. Oh yeah. A lot. Oh yeah. I loved it. Great theme song. So Todd, he must have had a band or something, and they recorded this really sort of grungy, heavy metal type of song. It's, it's like a trot, you know, where it just kind of yeah. repeats the yeah. heavy it's like trot. Durm, 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 you know. Yeah. yeah. And Todd Cheats is singing, and it's it's like the greatest thing ever. I listened to it like a million times. But uh, we might do a uh, cover of that, too. I think we could figure it out. Yep. So, it's got that going for it. Um, this is another one where it's super low budget, like something... The budget just seems like something that you could come up with on your own. But, it's... Uh, Alright, here's Todd's comments now. Alright, everybody. So, I got Todd Sheets with me now. And uh, he's going to join us for the rest of the retrospective and uh so todd we were right in the middle of talking about sorority babes or no uh prehistoric bimbos in armageddon city um right we love the music and we loved how the budget was low yet you still really um pushed for having what you wanted to have in it like you still push for your vision so there's like a scene where there's like a woolly mammoth in it just randomly. <laughs> yep. So uh, that that's kind of the stuff that makes me like fall in love with your work. So that was one of the things in that movie that I really enjoyed. And uh, I like that bike chase scene at the end. It was hilarious. I, <laughs> I totally got it. I totally got everything about it. So. Um, well, yeah, it's kind of like I was saying off the air, man. You know, those, those movies, you know, I, I want people to understand that anything before 93 is kind of a painful experience for a lot of us because of what we went through. We were just kids. We didn't know what we were doing. We were learning as we went. We had no one to help us. And on movies like prehistoric bimbos, we didn't even have a budget. We, we budget isn't even a word that we could use. We just, mm-hmm. Oh man, we need this. Okay. Here's 10 bucks. Let's go buy some fake fur or whatever. And we had a guy named Robert Bullrath who was kind of making like that big woolly mammoth looking monster with the weird insect head, he made it out of like just anything he had around the house. And he was kind of a genius when it came to that kind of stuff. And like the robots and the, and he played the bad guy in the, in the scene on the bikes chasing, oh, okay. you know? Yeah. He was, he played Robert Ballrath was in there. And so was Derek Bernier. Derek played salacious thatch and Robert Ballrath played the other guy with the claw hand, you know, and stuff. And there was all kinds of cool stuff. And uh, it was like, um, it was just trying to have fun. We were just a bunch of kids that were doing stuff that we kind of wanted to see. And a lot of that stuff was our own in-jokes. So we would watch it and laugh and we'd have a good time. We didn't really realize it was going to get distributed worldwide. And so when, when we have something that we thought was cool, then you turn around and someone will watch it in a different country or maybe a different city. They don't know what, they're like, what the hell is this? And we got a lot of, you know, bad, you know, attacks by people and fallout from some of those movies and then you know like i said you know here in kansas city we got a lot of crap from our own people here 
And there's people here to this day that still judge me from those films 30 years ago. They've never watched another movie since, but they trash me yeah. and say I'm talentless and, you know, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm a terrible director and all this, but they don't ever watch anything new. So I'm like, you don't think someone could grow in 30 years? I mean, it's kind of, I think the people not growing are the ones being that way, honestly. It's kind of hurtful and, and there's no reason for it. They were really mean to a bunch of kids, really. And we, yeah. we didn't, we, weren't, we, we certainly weren't going out there trying to, you know, it's a movie, man. We're not, you know, we're not running over your dog or, or smacking your grandma on the head. We're just making a movie. There's no reason for all the vitriol and the hatred. But like prehistoric bimbos, I remember. I just love the title, and um, so we just kind of tried to have some fun and make a movie like, you know, the people I loved were making. Which you know, I there's so many different filmmakers I've loved, but um, for the American side of it, it was like Fred Owen Ray and David Dakota. Jim Wynorski, all these guys that worked for Roger Corman and, and went on to do their own things. And Dave Dakota was really my mentor. And he, but before he became my mentor, he was someone that inspired me. So movies like, you know, these goofy bimbo movies made me want to make one. And I wanted to do something really goofy. And there was a group of us that directed a lot of these. It wasn't all me. Like on Bimbos in Time, they always looked me as the director. But actually, Mike Hillman directed just as much of that as I did. And then we even had other people, that, and Charlie Gooseman would come in and direct some things. So we had different people that were directing, and um, we were working on it as a team. We, you know, we, we all, just like on Goblin, you know, I directed part of Goblin, but Bobby Westrick did, and Mike Hellman did, and there's a bunch oh, really? of us that all put in, and we, we would all, I mean, I may be the main director, but um, for that one, like there was times I wasn't there or I was doing something else and they would take over and I'd say, oh, you go ahead and shoot that scene. Or, you know, Bobby directed a couple of scenes just because it was an, out of necessity. Cause at that time we were also doing, we were doing two productions at that time. Just like when we did Bimbos in time, I was prepping and getting ready to start shooting zombie bloodbath in the worst flood we ever had. So there's a group of us doing these and zombie bloodbath was the first one I directed completely all the way through without any other, kind of i didn't have an assistant director or anything it was just me but like those early movies were just a group effort of a bunch of us and i kind of was the main director out of necessity really i didn't start out saying i'm going to be a director like now you know a guy's an extra in your movie a couple of times and suddenly he's scorsese it's like crazy they get his cell phone and they're I'm now i'm the director okay but i didn't really do it that way i was the effects guy when i was a kid i, I loved special effects i was a famous monsters kid and so we started shooting these things on Super 8 film. We do like these Frankenstein epics or these other kind of movies, you know, zombie movies or whatever, even werewolf movies once in a while. Those were terrible. And we would, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we even did a Captain America versus the Red Skull movie once. It was like, you oh, know, really? this was when we were kids. Yeah. I was like, you know, I was probably 12 or 13 years old. And we would save up and save up and go get the film developed. And then we'd get it back. Sometimes it was too dark or sometimes it worked well. And you would... Then, you know, I had a splicer. I would splice it together. I would edit it all, and we would show it on my projector, and my projector had, like, a little dubbing thing on it so I could dub onto the one track of the – so we would sit there with, like, tape recorders and sound machines and a microphone and sit there and make noises and stuff to try to do it in time with the movie, and we had to do it live to record it onto there because there's no other way to do it. It, it was, like, a really weird time, but – I wouldn't trade that for the world because it really taught me a lot about film. And then I moved on to 16 millimeter and stuff and I was learning more about actual film. And that was so much fun. 
and we did. We had such a good time. You know, it was just, that's what it was all about with us doing following our dreams. But I came into it because I loved effects. I loved monsters. And I loved Ray Harryhausen and all these guys and Jack Pierce and you know all these major. Uh, I was a big Hammer movie fan too, and so. But the problem was is no one else knew how to do any of it, so I kind of became the director because I was like, okay, I know how to set up the lights at least, and I it was my dad's camera, and I know how to run that. And so that's kind of what happened. And then I fell in love with it because I loved being a storyteller, and I found that because I used to always write these little books when I was a kid too, comic books and regular books. I'd write these novels, and I'd always get in trouble at school because they were pretty bloody and everything oh, and yeah. they're like this kid's gonna end up in an asylum and i was catching all kinds of hell but didn't i did the same thing it's the way that's the way it should be and but then we moved on into film and i was like oh my goodness i can tell a story quicker doing it this way and i fell in love with it and i've always loved movies so much so that you know that's why those early movies exist and i really appreciate that people see what we were attempting to do and understand and, and they and they enjoy them and that's ultimately what we we were making them for ourselves to enjoy and laugh at. And it's just like a bonus that you guys love them now. But like yeah. in 93, all that kind of changed because I, I really wanted to give back to the horror community and to the film community that had helped me so much as a kid. I mean, I had a broken home. You know, my, my mom and dad would get divorced, get back together. It was a nightmare. And I moved around a lot, so I couldn't make really good friends. And so... You know, monster movies help me a lot. And when you have a bad week or a bad day or you have a horrible week at school, you'd go sit down and watch Slithus in the dark theater. And, man, you would, you would forget all that for a couple of hours and have a good time. And, and then, you know, you go back to your regular life and you're like, ah, oh, man, Phantasm, I remember going to the theater. And I, I went back several times that same weekend. I watched it like four or five times in one weekend because I loved it so much. And it was such an escape. And I'd had a particularly bad week and, and things just went well. And so... I would go to the movie theater, and so I wanted to give back. I wanted to do that for someone else. That was my dream. You know, I want to entertain people, and maybe one of my stories could do that for somebody someday. And so when it does that, that's the biggest reward in the world. You know, that's like, wow, I can't believe, because, you know, that's like truly a gift for you guys to watch this stuff and to appreciate it. That's the biggest gift in the world for me, you know, because who am yeah. I? I'm just a guy, you know? I think I think uh, we can all say that your films have definitely – you know made our day better you know watching it just kind of um we definitely appreciate them and i got a question for you real quick todd so there's this one uh recurring set that you use and i'm really a big fan of it uh it actually was in prehistoric bimbos and it's also in zombie bloodbath but it's sort of this like half cave half building type area yeah, do you yeah. know what I'm talking about? What, where is that? Yeah, I do. What, what, do you still film there from time to time? or? Well, we want to. Uh, that's Park College. And what they do is they have like this amazing area that goes from normal building area to the underground, and it becomes a cave, an unfinished cave. And they use it for storage. A lot of people rent that out now. Back then, it, it wasn't. They were preparing it for this. Now, companies rent that out for storage. I still want to shoot there, but what happened was there's other filmmakers. We mentioned the cell phone Scorsese's, and they went in there, and they basically trashed the place. So the dean of students knows me, and so they tried to use my name and say, oh, yeah, we're with Todd, but they weren't with me at all. They just knew we were filming there because it was all over the TV and stuff. So 
then I went back and talked to the dean, and he knows it wasn't my company, but the problem is that the president of that college doesn't appreciate people trashing the place, so no one gets to film there right now. And it's heartbreaking because it's like you guys, we always took care of every place. I mean, you got to treat every location like it's your, your home. You know, you've got to treat mm-hmm. it with respect. Yeah. And the fact that that happened, I was like, what is going on, these people? And, yeah, unfortunately, um, no one's filming there right now. So that's sad because it's not only is it what you see there, but there's like these – the place looks like Dracula's castle, man. It's gorgeous. <laughs> and I'm just like, God, that would be so great to film there. I got a but, strong uh, Day of the Dead look from that. Yeah, exactly. So was prehistoric bimbos in Armageddon City, were they in that cave part then when they were doing, when you were doing those cave scenes then? Was that that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all that. But yeah, that, I mean, like I said, it just seemed like it was like this big budget. It wanted to be this big budget film. And that's kind of a recurring theme with all of your films. I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. It's because... We we're so ambitious. No one told a group of goofy kids that there's no way in hell we're going to be able to make <laughs> this happen. And so anything we dreamed up, we just figured we would try to make it happen. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it was atrocious, but we tried. And uh, and I guess because of that, even now, like movies like Clownado, you know, I've got my friends in L.A. and producers I know in L.A. that tell me, Todd, there's no way. You're, you need ten times this amount of money to make this movie. And, uh, and they're right by normal standards. But I refuse to say, well, let me cut it all to pieces. Let me get rid of all this cool stuff and just make it a small – I mean, I just can't – I have a story to tell. And I didn't want to have, like, two people sitting in a room. So we would just tell the story. We would – you know, we, we – were products of the movies we loved you know all the all the horror movies of the 60s and 70s and 80s um the science fiction movies of the 70s and 80s and think like i said i mentioned famous monsters but also the tv series that we had back then were pretty kind of crazy like Battlestar Galactica and buck rogers and, mm-hmm. and everything changed when, when we saw star wars i mean it made us all it, it changed the lives of so many people um and then they came out with cinemagic magazine which would show you how to do star wars style stuff on super eight you know using star foam containers from you know kentucky fried chicken or whatever (laughs) and um so we started you know like some of our sets and stuff we started reading about how oh well that set was basically big mac boxes you know opened up and stuck to the wall with liquid nail or with staples or whatever and then they paint them and so we took this stuff to heart and started learning how to do a lot of that ourselves and trying to um, tell these epic stories that were way too ambitious for kids with no money at all and somehow find a way to do it. And, you know, meeting people like Robert who was able to basically make those robots out of star foam and stuff he found at the hardware store or the big monsters were just like, oh, man, someone threw away this carpet and I cut it up and <laughs> made it into this creature. I and mean, it really did happen like that. It was crazy. Yeah, we. I think we all love the robots. I think we can all say Oh yeah, Definitely. we loved them. But uh, so the next, the next uh one that I kind of wanted to get your thought on that I really enjoyed was uh, Nightmare Asylum, and you're in that oh. quite a bit, and you're oh. you're wildly wielding a machete, and I think, I think we, I think I had messaged you while I was watching it, and I was that now that was a real machete, right? Oh, it is. Yeah, <laughs> he's but. just kind of going crazy. I loved it. Um, 
gave a lot of attention oh. to the scenes, and I'm sure it kind of got the actors more involved. Getting sliced to pieces. <laughs> I tell you, that was the hardest thing in the world for me because basically what happened, that's when I still believed that you could shoot in the wintertime in Kansas City. And so we had a location that had given us the green light to shoot there for six weeks or whatever. But um, during that six-week period, that also included writing a script of some kind and and trying to figure out what we could do. Well, we didn't end up having six weekends. We ended up having like three weekends. And so because the, the snow and the blizzards and the ice. So one night we're there on location, and we're getting ready to film. And Derek Bernier was supposed to play the part that I ended up playing. And uh, actually, he was going to play the part that Jerry and I both ended up playing. We just split it into two and made it like a tag team thing. And it was like horrible because I didn't want to act ever ever and after seeing that movie most people agree with me it's probably not a good idea to ever do it again and uh, it, it was a horrible um thing and because he couldn't get to set i mean it was literally an ice storm that just popped up out of nowhere so we had to take over or we had to cancel shooting and everyone else was already there and it wasn't fair to them so we kind of started shooting it and um it, the movie was supposed to be it, it didn't come together the way i wanted it to because i didn't know how to do it i, I was only my second movie ever and um, it was supposed to be something that was happening inside of one girl's mind. And basically, everything in the movie is a nightmare, and there's no logic to it. And it's like, I wanted it to be like real dreams were, which to me are very fractured sometimes. Like, sometimes you'll have a dream that's all the way through and fine, but other times you'll have a fractured dream or a dream that's like several different parts, and it keeps coming back to the same part over and over, mm-hmm. and it's weird. And uh, so we wanted to do that, and then at the very end, have her wake up, realize it was all a dream, the entire movie, and then um, something, like, takes her, and she ends up in an insane asylum. But we didn't have an insane asylum, and we couldn't even figure out how to build one at the time that looked real. We tried, but it looked terrible. So um, it just didn't work the way we wanted it to. And plus, like I said, I, it's, it's one of the disowned movies, and I, I kind of hate it, but at the same time, I think I hate it because I was in it. <laughs> so. yeah i i thought you were like very energetic and i like the uh underground tunnel system that kind of came into play later in it and i liked how yeah, also yeah. there was different rooms and i actually noticed that you kind of did this in dreaming purple neon which which was my favorite part of that one that movie but it seems like these characters would go into like a different room inside this and there's like something crazy wild going on that's not really ever explained and then you just kind of move on to the next part so it's it's almost uh it's almost otherworldly in that respect where because you do do a good job of like world building and with that one it was really cool because like i said it was almost like hell how there's like different layers and you know you it's kind of like a journey through the different layers and stuff like that kind of like a dante's inferno type of thing going on so i really enjoyed that about it but uh, moving on to zombie bloodbath, I think all of our favorite part w- is the guy getting his ass eaten out. Definitely. Uh, yeah. That yeah, was probably that was... another part where somebody probably told you you couldn't do that, but you did it anyways, and it's awesome. Now, that actor is kind of a recurring actor in some of your stuff, and I, we've really grown to enjoy him. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, Jerry, Jerry Angel, and he was like, and still is one of my best friends. We're kind of like family, really. Um, Jerry and I were inseparable. 
we would go to video stores everywhere together and, and stuff. And the thing with Zombie Bloodbath is we decided we wanted to make a really kick-ass because we were getting all this press. And we're like, you know what? We've really got something here. Let's try to pool together and, and have a little bit of a budget. We had around $2,500 or whatever. And we're like, let's make this movie the ultimate zombie movie by paying respect and homage to all of our favorite zombie movies, which were mostly Italian. And um, so we kind of have everything in there in the kitchen sink. But Jerry and I, I remember I'd write this, the scenes and stuff in the scripts, and then we'd go out and I'd show him what I'd written. And it took me a, about a month and a half to write it or whatever, but we would sit down on the weekend and, and we would brainstorm these gore scenes together because we were like, we were like uh, Bart Simpson, really. We were sitting there like, hee, 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 what way did they get a load of this one? And on Zombie Rampage, I'd really broke some taboos because we had the mother with the stroller, and you actually see the baby get attacked and they rip the leg off and all kinds of crazy, unbelievable you just don't see that kind of stuff normally. Mm-hmm. And um, so we were like, okay, we did that in that movie, but let's take it further. And then Jerry's like, hey, my wife cooked a chicken, and I kept all this chicken skin, and I've got it in the freezer. And I'm like, dude, that's nasty, you know? I don't want it. And he's like, no, 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 it's going to be great. And and he's like, I'm going to pour it, put it all in my mouth, and then they're going like, to stick their hand up my butt, and they're going to push all the guts <laughs> out of my mouth. I said, okay. I said, that, that, ought, to, that ought to wow them. So we were coming up with these goofy gore scenes that would just kind of be, because I would already have one written and we would, with him sitting there, we would brainstorm together and push each other to be grosser. And so zombie bloodbath, basically, I just wanted it to be a zombie bloodbath. And so it was, you know, it was really hard to film too, because of the, uh, the great flood of 93 here in the Midwest. Um, like a lot of our locations were underwater. And when I say that, I mean, we went to location and there was maybe a foot or two of the building sticking out of this. And it was like a five or six story mm-hmm. building. And that's all that was sticking out. Everything had become a river. And so we had to do rewrites. And that's why it's kind of disjointed. I always felt a little upset because this was my big zombie movie break. And and it, it never really gelled like I wanted it to. And that's because a lot of the stuff that I had originally in the script, we couldn't help but get rid of. And everyone's like, well, why didn't you just wait? I said, well... The problem was is that we'd already signed a deal with a movie theater chain, and they were going to show this uh, during Halloween, and they'd already sold tickets, and the, and the place was selling out. Mm. It ended up selling out two screenings completely, and it was a 700-seat theater. And so we were like, wow, we kind of don't – I mean, they there was more writing on this than our whole budget, really. So we were like, oh, my goodness, we didn't want to get in trouble with yeah. you know the, the contract we signed and stuff, so we had to finish it. And also – it would have had to be the next year because this flood didn't just last for a day or two. It lasted the entire summer. I mean, we got like, I can't remember how many, but like 200 days with nonstop rain. It was really unbelievable, something like that. And so people were like, my God, you know, you've you've been underwater. We didn't know when the water was even going to leave. And so we were like, well, we could either finish this movie or put it back on the burner for another, you know, year. Uh, And then we had this deal with this theater and we were like, well, we I don't want to mess them over, and they've already sold all these tickets. They'll have to refund all this. So we just went ahead and finished it, and I just had to change things and cut parts of my script out and reorder things. And did that affect the length at all? Because huh? it, did did that affect the length of the movie at all? Because it runs at like seventy seventy five minutes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it did originally. Yeah, I mean that it was going to be probably about ninety and ninety five minutes, but um, you know there were things we just couldn't do, even though we tried. And and we had so many great people in, involved. We had a makeup effects crew of like, 
like 15 people because we literally some days would have three or 400 zombies at a time. And we, we ended up having a total of over 740 or 750 zombies on that movie. And we went through so much blood and that's where all of our money went really was for the makeup and the gore effects because all the locations and stuff really worked with us and they really got behind us because we did a lot of promotion and we were on Fox and CNN and I was even on MTV for the Jon Stewart show and we did um, ABC, CBS, NBC, KCPT, the, like the, the PBS networks. We did all these things um, and the CNN stuff went viral and the Fox one went viral. Back then it wasn't called viral, but it got picked up by the major stations and it was broadcast all over the United States. And so the movie had grown into this huge thing. I think the title helped a lot, really. And uh, and we did fun things. Did they do that thing where they promote it sort of as like this depraved sort of how could these people make this kind of thing, or did they actually? Oh like no, give it a... they were so excited. Oh, that's they good. were uh, they were very positive. And like one of the girls, Amy Marcinkowitz, was with Fox, and she did a story, and she was the reporter, and and I arranged for the zombies to attack her, but I didn't tell her. So when she's wrapping up the story, I had all the zombies jump in and get her. And they just loved that. And also, during this time, you have to realize we would film all night until like 3 or 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, break down all of our equipment. Then we'd go down to the river, and I would have you know, 100 zombies with me, and we would sandbag the river for a few hours before we'd go home, get a little bit of rest, and then come back and do it all again. And so we, they loved the fact that I had all these zombie volunteers, and we're down there sandbagging the river you know, <laughs> um, after filming all night long because we we were trying to help you know we were part of the community here and we we wanted to to help we wanted to make sure no one else lost their homes and so i was like well i've got all these people already here let's ask how many of them can go down there with me and sometimes when you'd have 300 extras you'd get 100 of them they'd say yeah we'll go with you and so we'd carpool down there and, and sandbag the river so it was a very positive thing and everyone loved the fact that the, you know there's these hometown kids that are not only making this insane movie that's way too ambitious, but we're also sandbagging the river to keep people from losing their homes. It was all a pretty positive experience aside from the fact that we kind of had to lose a lot of our vision on the film just because of the terrible conditions. And you you kind of always are kind of a positive, caring person. I know on the special features for a lot of your films, you kind of do this uh, sort of circle you guys kind of you guys kind of form a circle and then like you you kind of are in charge of saying all these positive things about everybody and getting everybody like pumped for the uh you know filming process which sometimes can be really stressful uh but and yeah, also that's not your sure. first uh time you saved a uh, building from a flood uh i remember the skyline drive-in flood of last year uh, you yep. were doing yep. anything you could to help stop the water from getting into the concession stand. So that's that's because I I'd had lots of experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew how to do it. Uh, that wasn't the first, and it certainly wasn't the last time we flooded here. And so I kind of knew what to do. I mean, you guys were in there kicking butt too. I remember we were using folding chairs <laughs> for water paddles to get mm-hmm. the water out of there. We had a little bit of a chain going on. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> next film we got goblin uh well i guess so goblin probably came out before zombie bloodbath then right yeah it was way before goblin was like it was goblin was like um uh, about three years before that or 
something like that that we filmed it. Um, but Goblin was a, well, that was, I don't even know. It's one of those movies that people love and I don't even understand why, but, um, I remember, I love it. Exactly. And I, and a lot of people do, and I, I, I appreciate it. I just, wow. But, um, it's, it's weird that I remember that making that movie was pretty hard and, uh, just getting through it. was was just like why why are we what are we doing and you're in that one too and you're kind of like looking for somebody the whole movie oh man that whole thing (laughs) but you have an iron maiden shirt on which was cool um yes i love that part like where the (laughs) goblin rips the girl from end to end oh yeah yeah Uh, there's some there's some brutal gore in that movie that's for sure yeah that some of it's like holy cow how did you do that um really enjoyed it now, now the next movie we'll talk about is w- definitely one of my favorite of yours um, because I'm a big fan of Dune and I feel like it encapsulated that in a way. Uh, Moonchild. Cool. Yeah, that was a good time. The uh, was, I think I bought the tough. DVD from you and I got the soundtrack too. But I love that opening car. Anytime a movie starts with the opening cha- car chase scene, you know, you, you got me interested. Yeah, and there's that ambition. <laughs> that's cool that one um you talk about ambitious that movie was so mm-hmm. ambitious and i really loved the script i still do i think it's got great characters it does um, yeah. it's got a it, it's got a real epic feel to it we, we made it on literally no money i mean it's unbelievable i, I think we made that movie for under a thousand dollars it was like maybe 750 bucks or whatever but that movie, you know, I had a lot of people pull in and, and throw in on it to try to help out. And uh, I don't know, man, I, I look back at that movie and, I, you know, it was weird because the Alamo Draft House decided that they were going to start showing that all over the country at all of their theaters as part of this, you know, retro deal. And um, I didn't know about it at first and it was popping up everywhere and everyone's saying, hey, I just watched Moonshot at the theater last night. I'm like, what? <laughs> so then they found out, well the theater here in Kansas city is right down the street. And they were like, Oh my goodness. So the guy that runs that down in Austin got a hold of me and, and we've kind of been back and forth friends for a while. And he said, man, Todd, you know, you're right there. Let's get you down there and you can intro the movie. And I also got Augie to come the star of the movie. And, uh, we kicked back and, and we had such a good time introing that movie. And I was so honored that they would want to do this all over the country like that and do a tour of this movie that I'd made. You know, that one was what, 20 years ago or more 20, that one we made in what, 94. So yeah, I mean, that's, it's 25 years old now, you know, it's like, what the hell is going on? You know, almost 24 years. Tommy Bloodbath's 25. It's a 25th anniversary. And I was floored. And what an honor that someone would take something we did that long ago on no money at all. And we fought people who were giving us such a hard time just to get it made. And then the next thing I know, it's playing and people are laughing and having a great time and enjoying it. And I, I tell you what, man, you know, people have asked me, would you like to remake that? And I was like, you know, I would, but at the same time, I wouldn't because we kind of captured something special and very naive. We were very naive. We believed we could do this epic on a dollar twenty-five, and <laughs> it's kind of got a charm to it, you know, I mean, if I did it now, you you know, I think I know so much now and and I've learned so much more that 
I mean, I don't mean that I know it all because I know we never know it all. Every day on the set is a learning experience, and if it's not, it's a wasted day. Mm-hmm. That's what I say. But, but you know, I know a lot more now than I did then. And if the uh, technology's come so far back then, people don't understand there was no way to do the stuff we were trying to do. And we were one of the first ever micro-budget movies to do a morphing effect. And a lot of people say, how did you do that? Did you buy this program and that program? We did that by hand in the very first version of Adobe Photoshop ever. We took the exported frames and we did that by hand and then put the frames back together to make it what it is because we didn't have the money to buy a morphing effect. And that's when morphing was brand new. It had just been used in Terminator 2 and stuff. And we, we were like, well, we're going to do a morphing thing. And we didn't know how. <laughs> so we just did it by uh, basically filming the, the beginning and filming the ending and then figuring out how to combine them and, and morph them ourselves frame by frame in Adobe Photoshop. So that's the kind of things we were doing because we didn't have the technology that's out there today, you know? So it was pretty weird, pretty rough. One thing I've always wanted to know, because um, you're a huge Maiden fan, uh, did you name that after Moonchild, the Maiden song? or I, I certainly did. Uh, nice. I certainly did. It's not the same kind of story because this one takes place in the future and it's all different, but that name was so inspirational for me. And to be honest, there's so many things that Iron Maiden have inspired, not in just in my movies, but in my whole life, that um, the fact that it comes out in the movies, like the movie Fear of the Dark we made, is definitely, you know, again, it's an Iron Maiden title, but I still am so inspired by them um, all the time. You know, I, I, I love them dearly, so. Yeah, well, um, when I was driving you around, we were we were good, you know, I would say we were good friends, and we were really getting to know each other and like each other, but the second... I asked because all I have in my car was Iron Maiden, and I asked you if it was okay if we could listen to that. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know you that all that well. And that's when it really, that's when it took it to the next level. Once we both find found out we were huge Iron Maiden fans, and you're a huge Iron Maiden fan. I mean, you've played soccer, you've been to the soccer games, and uh, you've been to tons yeah. of concerts and all that stuff. So. Yeah, that that's definitely awesome. It definitely shows through the film, so it's really great. It's really weird you mention that because a, a buddy of mine just came back with a poster that has been drawn for me by Derek Riggs, Iron Maiden's artist that uh you know did all the eddies, and he signed it to me and everything, and I just like melted. That is like one of the <laughs> greatest things anyone's ever done for me, and he was like. Oh my God! And uh, he's an effects guy that's going to be working with us on some future projects. And he got that for oh, me. Nice. And I got to tell you, dude, you know, you know how it is. I, you know, I got Eddie's head in there, sitting on top of the shelf. It's like this is mm-hmm. all about, it's all about Maiden for me. And and the fact that you liked them, I was like, oh, one of us. <laughs> you know, it was like this is so great. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like I said, it was like another level. Once, once we it started was. talking about May, and it was just like nonstop talking. So we got Zombie Bloodbath 2. Me and Curtis, uh, b- big fans of that one. We kind of did a uh, marathon of the Zombie Bloodbaths one night. Uh, but the next one that's really interesting to talk about would be Violent New Breed, which, uh, oh, yeah. if you want to talk about that for a minute, that that movie's a lot of fun. And it has... Um, Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah, Rudy yeah. Ray Moore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Dolomite. Dolomite. I got to tell you, um, 
Violent New Breed is my very favorite of all of my old school films. Really? Um, that one was like a culmination of years of learning stuff. And we made that in 90, like right on the edge of 95 going into 96. And then we, that was pre-production in 96 that summer. We, we full blown on it. We had three or four different effects shops around the country that were working on different parts of it. We were all pulling together. Um, the budget, I can't, you know, it was probably around 3,500 or whatever, but a chunk of that went to Rudy because I was told, Hey, who, if there was any actor you'd want to work with, who would it be? And I had two, I had Linda Blair and Rudy Ray Moore. And we'd contacted Linda's agent and kind of found out that Linda was kind of getting the short end of the stick on that. We were paying this agent a ton of money and Linda wasn't making hardly any. So I was like, that, that just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And so then I was talking to Rudy on the phone, a mutual friend in LA had got me in contact with him and we, um, just hit it off and we were laughing and he was in awe of all this stuff I knew about him. I was a crazy, goofy white kid in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, uh, so he said, well, send me over the script. So back in those days, it was mail. So I overnighted in the script and, um, I sent along a picture of my Rudy Ray Moore collection of stuff that I had, which he couldn't believe I had albums and posters and movies and everything. And so then he wrote back and he said, I tell you what, I'll do it. So I've never done a horror movie and this thing's just nuts. So I'm going to give, he goes, you, you remind me of me in my early days. You just don't even care. You're just going for it. And it was nuts. I mean, that movie was so yeah. damned ambitious. I was out of my mind. I mean, we set people on fire. We had car explosions, all this stuff. So, and plus it was a huge storyline. So he agreed to do it. We got Rudy attached and then, uh, we just started going for it. And, um, that was an adventure. Wow, that was such an adventure making that movie. And it's got such a – it was so hard because there was a guy that was an executive producer on it, and he hated the script because he thought I was taking things way too far. His name was Greg. And Greg was going around to other people kind of trying to turn them against what we were doing, and he was telling people lies like this movie's never getting finished. They're out of money, you know, this and this and this, and trying to, like, put – people in the middle of all this stuff that wasn't true because my lawyer um who's an entertainment lawyer was, was one of the investors and he was also he's, he's done a lot of stuff he's one of the people who does the um walt disney museums and stuff and he's just definitely not out of money and the other investor was um ted who had invested in a couple of our movies and he was fine there was nothing wrong with the money um the fact that this guy was doing this in the middle of my film and half the people didn't know what to think. So I had a mutiny going on and he was trying to pit me against my assistant director and just a bunch of bad stuff. And I'm trying to get through. And during the movie of all things, I ended up battling a custody case for my son, which was lovely. Um, so all this was going on during violent new breed. It seems like those are the ones that you love the most is the ones that almost kill you. They say, yeah. And um, Violent New Breed really was the most difficult movie I'd ever made in my entire career up until Clownado. And Clownado still isn't quite as bad as that was, but uh, Violent New Breed was very, very difficult. So at the end of the day, after I put it all together and I watched it and everything and, and the way the music came together and the way the all this stuff happened with no money, I was really, really proud of it. And then the reviews started coming out, and I remember Michael Scritchin, uh, he was a very early 
you know, he had a website very early on, like the video graveyard or whatever, and he reviewed it and he said, this is what shot on video movies should be. And if you, I remember being so honored and, and, and humbled by these words because he said, if you want to get started on shot on video movies, this is the one to start with because it's the pinnacle. And um, it, it kind of blew my mind for someone to say that. And um, I had learned a lot by then, though, and I really was reading every book I could get my hands on about directing and about filmmaking. So I'd learned about the director's line. Also, thanks to people like J.R. Bookwalter, David Dakota, even George Romero, um, people I'd been involved with who had helped me understand things like the line of action and composition of shots and things that, you know, you don't know unless you, you know, I went to film school and it was just a bunch of people sitting around critiquing movies being assholes. Yeah. So that didn't work for me. So I was like, I, I need someone to explain this. And so just learning and reading about it and getting better and watching movies a lot. And so Violent New Breed looks really good, I think. I mean, it was shot on Super VHS, and, and we mastered it to Beta Cam SP, and we film looked it, and it played on the movie channel, which is owned by Showtime. Uh, we had to cut it for that. Um, that's the only cut version that ever existed of the movie was the one that the movie channel got. But there's just a couple of things we had to snip out because we we go pretty far in that movie. So, um, but and that's when you first started doing the uh, the uh, kind of Italian lighting where uh, you really, as far as I know, uh, that's when you really started giving more attention to the lighting and stuff like that with the colorful palettes and stuff like that. We had done some of that on Goblin, and we did some on Zombie Bloodbath and those movies, but we just didn't have enough lighting. That was the problem. We didn't have enough money for lights, mm -hmm. so we only had like six lights. So by the time we got to Violent New Breed, I had been you know, accumulating equipment, and also I was borrowing lights from people I met along the way, and, and so we had enough lighting to finally you know, do, do what we needed to do. So, yeah. Is there any other, I, I definitely want to talk about the, uh, incident that caused you to have, you, you sort of took a break and then, you know, an incident occurred that kind of brought you back into the film, uh, circuit again. Is there any other films before we get to that, that you want to go over? I haven't seen any of the ones between violent new breed and house of forbidden secrets. So, yeah, we did we did some good ones in there. We did a few good ones I was I really liked. Um you know, we did uh Fear of the Dark, which is a pretty fun little movie. We did Whispers in the Gloom, which is really crazy. You talk about ambitious. That's a movie about an alien invasion. I was friends with Art Bell and Art and I kinda worked on the storyline together, um, over the phone and stuff, and Art had this caller that was on there one night. And uh, they were saying that they were, you know, being triangulated. And they used to work at Area 51, and the aliens were coming to get them, all this. And then all of a sudden, all the power went out. And what had happened was that was a, an open line thing, and this guy had called in and said all this stuff. And then Art lost power in the middle of a sandstorm because he was in Perm, Nevada. And so everyone assumed that this, that this happened, and this guy got cut off, and, and that the guy had, you know, gotten killed or whatever. But that really sent my creative juices flowing and we came up with this whole idea for whispers in the gloom which is about a small town overrun by aliens and we have all these crazy we have like this scene where these creatures come out of a tv and they're made out of the static of the television and they're like these these beings and they 
get in a fight with one of the characters. And we had to create all that stuff um, in the computer. So it was the first, I think we were the first micro-budget movie to do like full 3D modeling and stuff too, where we had spaceships and aliens and creatures and all kinds of stuff. And then we also had practical effects. You know, so we tried to do a little bit of both. That one's a really good one. And then, uh, you know, we did a we did there's a bunch of movies we were doing, but then what happened was, um, my good friend and childhood, he was like a brother. We were, we really were like brothers. Um, Dennis, he was killed in a horrible accident, and I held him in my, my arms, and um, and basically he died right there. Uh, and I felt like I'd been in a war. You know, they talk about PTSD and mm-hmm. casualties of war. And um, I didn't, you know, I, I never went to therapy or anything. I just kind of regressed into my own world. And basically, uh, I, I took a break right then and there. That was when I started my hiatus. And that was in 2005. And uh, I'd been working on something right before that called Say It Again, which is a... Uh, action comedy kind of weird it's like it's uh i guess it's like if kevin smith was on acid and fell into a david lynch movie it's really a strange movie but we were working on that just to do something different and fun and i never did finish that i i've got pretty much it all finished i mean i could probably edit it and release it and shoot like three or four inserts and it'd be done but um it was devastating so i was also trying to raise you know, my kids, my son at the time. And I was like, you know, I, I'm just going to, um, cause I had custody, you know, and he was living with me and stuff. And I was like, I'm just gonna just take a break from all this because trying to make movies had become so difficult with all the egos and the know-it-alls and the bad mouthing and the backstabbing. And this is a small town, Kansas city. I mean, why I don't understand. And, you know, people would lie about me or, or say bad things about me to try to ruin my reputation. And I don't even know why that would happen, but it did. Ridiculous. And so I got to the point where I was like, you know, what am I going to do? And I just, it just was too much. So I just went ahead and took a hiatus and gave up on it. And um, that's kind of where I stopped. And then lo and behold seven years later I had a terrible thing happened I had a heart attack I almost died I had quadruple bypass surgery open heart that was terrible and um, the uh, I don't know it, 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 during that time I was in the hospital 31 days and I had two surgeries because there were complications and uh, during the second surgery, I literally flatlined, and I had a near-death experience. I didn't even believe in that kind of stuff. Um, but I had it, and it's real. And um, all this stuff goes, they really, they really, when they say your life flashes before your eyes, it kind of does. Not the way you imagine it, but in a different way. And so this whole thing happened with me, and, and I just wanted to get back to doing what I loved the most. And that was... Uh, you know, making movies. And right before I had the heart attack, I had gotten a bunch of new equipment and stuff. And I had, because Antoine, Antoine Steele, he's been with the company 25 years doing this with me. And, and he was just constantly on me about making another movie. So I had an idea for one called House of Forbidden Secrets. 
that I thought could be, could be kind of fun. I had a basic outline for it. I was like, I wrote a scene, and I was like, let's shoot this one scene and see how it comes out. And so we were testing the new equipment, and we shot this scene. And um, I just edited that scene and put it on YouTube to see what kind of a response I would get. And then literally like a week later, I'm in the hospital with the heart attack. So while I was in there, I finished writing the script for House of Forbidden Secrets. And um, when I got out, I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And, and one of the things I really took to heart was my cardiologist said, and my surgeon, they said, look, when you get out of the hospital, you need to stay active. Don't just lay around because some people never get back in the game because you can, I mean, you, you, you can basically get in that rut. And so, and it's also a psychological thing. When you have a heart attack, there's like this whole psychological thing that happens. Chemicals change in your whole body. And I didn't want that to happen to me. So I went to these, cause I had to go to these, this uh, therapy for, for open heart surgery and I had to go to, um, they had this thing, you know, when you just rehabilitation and all that. So I had to go do all that stuff after the surgery. And uh, there's a lot of guys in there that just like up and changed their, and these young guys of 45, you know, 30, 28, but they were, they, after they'd have a heart attack, they would change their whole lives. Like this one guy divorced his wife, left his kids and went off to a whole different thing Damn. because it, the chemical is so strong it happens a lot, believe it or not, that kind of thing. And I was like, I don't want to change. I like who I am. And if anything, I want to get back to the guy I used to be back when I was a kid, first making movies. I want that kind of passion to come back. So mm-hmm. um, that's basically what I did. I, you know, I, I got out of all that, and I, I started working. Like I was only out of the hospital two weeks, and I'm walking three flights of stairs trying to build my strength. I was going around trying to find, they had a Batmobile tour. I was trying to find the Batmobile, <laughs> get on the Bat cycle and all that. I was going around, Walmart was doing it. And I remember hunting everywhere to find that. And just all these things were happening. And I really wanted to be active. And so I pushed myself and pushed myself. And within six or seven months, we were in production on House Forbidden Secrets after that heart attack. So it really did work out. And uh, that was my homage to Italian horror films that I grew up loving, like Argento and Fulci and, and stuff. And I even had um, the uh, composer that Fulci used so much that I absolutely loved. Uh, Fabio Frizi was part of the film. Mm-hmm. And uh, and originally, he's, I just wanted him to do the theme song, but he said, you know, send me what you got. Send me the script. Send me the rough cut of anything you got. And so I didn't have the whole movie rough cut, but I had some of it. And I sent it. And... Um, we were still filming, but he said, uh, he said, Fultry would be proud. And he said, I'm going to do the whole movie for what I would normally charge for the theme. And I said, wow, are you kidding me? And he did. He did an amazing soundtrack. Not yeah. every bit of it is in the movie because I had an executive producer who was a real pain in my ass who basically forced me to let other people do sound design on my film and get rid of some of Fabio's stuff because he said it depressed him, made him want him to kill himself. And I was like, what a jerk. But Fabio's, he and I keep joking that one day we're going to do it. We're going to go back and recut the whole movie, and he's going to do a tour and play the whole thing live like he's done with some of the other movies. And I thought that would be fun to do that. So anything can happen. I do want to do, you know, I want to have the Fabio Freezy cut eventually when I have some time to do it. With moving on, uh, you did a couple of uh, sort of like collaboration films with, High Eight and uh, Sleepless Nights. 
and I did get a chance to check those out, and I really enjoyed those ones. Um, Thank you. How did that all kind of come about with uh, with filming all those? Well, it's kind of weird because while we were, well, while I was doing House of Forbidden Secrets, I was getting a little bit of press for that, and Brad Sykes had decided he kind of wanted to pull a bunch of us together that were pioneers in the shot on video scene. And so um, basically he he wrote me and asked me, could I do it? I said, I'd be honored to do it. And he gave me a list of rules. And there were eight rules, and uh, we had to do things on old school equipment, the old school way, no modern stuff at all. And so I came up with a request, this uh, story about a disc jockey, and, and we we rolled with it. We shot that in like a couple of days, and that was the other thing. You had to shoot it in like just one weekend or whatever, so we did. And that led to um, the doing High Death, which just came out last week. And one of my favorite movies I've ever done is in that. It's called The Muse, and I just love that. That's a short that's just amazing what we could pull off. And um, I loved it. It was like the first time I had things kind of turn out in a way that it wasn't exactly what I had written because we got, we went through hell again, we went through hell, but it was like, it was like if a director reimagines and redoes his own movie, that's what the muse was like for me, but it, I loved it. Right. And so then, um, sweep of sights you mentioned was something that we did in extreme entertainment where we had a lot of friends that were making short films and stuff. And we was like, let's just pull all of us together and do something fun and, and do a, and I, I don't really have a solid segment in that. I just have like the little wraparound thing I did, but, um, okay. yeah, I mean, I didn't do a solid, I don't, I don't, I didn't have a story. I don't think in that one. I know, um, Amanda had a story in it. Antoine had, well, you know, I kind of was like a co-director on his segment. The, uh, it hits the fan segment. The ones, you know, flashback to the seventies when he goes through the time warp and everything that I really like that one. That's a great one. Oh yeah. 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 I remember that one. That one was my, one of my favorites. I didn't know Anton. Uh, I know he was in it. I didn't know he, yeah, he and I kind of wrote it together and then he kind of, it was like his start trying to direct kind of thing and he hurt himself. So I kind of took over and directed it, but, um, we kind of just did that one together. It was just kind of fun. Amanda did hers, the crawler, Brad Twig, he did one. That's also on Amazon Prime as well, uh, Sleepless Nights. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was I was happy to see that. That's pretty cool. A lot of these are Wild Eye uh, releasing. Yeah, he did that one, yeah. Grindhouse Video uh, right now is having a sale on those, so if anybody wants to go check these movies out, um, they're having a pretty good sale right now. I think I saw High 8 for like $6 on DVD, so that's pretty good. Uh, if people want to kind of check out High Eight and Sleepless Nights and all that, I don't know what else is under that label, but I tell you what, man, um, Grindhouse Video is is some place that really embraced me early on, and I would go down for like grand openings and stuff. And Mike Sandlin, the owner, is an amazing guy, and we just hit it mm-hmm. off. And I would do special things just for his store. There was a version of Dream Purple Neon you could only get at his store. The same with House of Forbidden Secrets. And um, so we always did like little special things and Dream Purple Neon we did just for his store on just because it was made for his store, if you know what I mean. That's the kind of movie that he relishes. And so we did a version of the cover from the scene with the big giant drill going in the guy's backside. Um, <laughs> that is that we did a cover of that shot just for 
uh, grindhouse video, took posters down, and I would go down and I would I would sign them, and I would. It was always a really good turnout and a really good time, and and so I urge people to always go to Grindhouse Video because they're really good people and they take good care of you. And uh, Mike's a really good guy. Tell him, tell him that uh, Todd says hi and that Charlie sent you, in, and he'll be excited. Also, check out their website too, because they do they have a lot of good stuff there. If you can't make it down to Florida, they do. I mean, they have uh, they have yeah. they have everything. Like uh, I was able to get Frankenstein created bikers on there. Uh, I was able to yep. get the uh, last house on Dead End Street, uh, you know, releasing there. Um, they're they're great. We always try to promote them, not because we have any sort of connection with them, but just because we really love them. So. Yeah, I got uh, I got yeah. Lost Faith from Joel Winecoop. I got that movie, and that was hard to find because Cult Movie Mania had kind of morphed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, speaking of that drill up the ass scene, uh, dreaming w- was that dreaming purple neon that you did that for? It, yeah, it was. Uh, so <laughs> with dreaming purple neon, uh, I think that was the first film I might have watched by yours. I got to see it at the Skyline Drive-In in Shelbyville. Uh, it was just wild. Like I had never seen anything like that before, as far as like the style. And how crazy it was for being independent. How did that all come about, the Dreamy Purple Neon? Because that's definitely one of my favorites. Well, after the nightmare of making House for Business Secrets and dealing with an executive producer that didn't see eye to eye with me, um, like I appreciate someone who comes along and wants to help you finance your film. Of course I do. I love it. Thank you so much. But, man, it's like I, I got put through the ringer. I almost ended up back in a hospital with another heart attack because of that guy. Um it was really difficult, and I decided, look, I'm either going to make a movie my way again and have fun, or I'm going to quit right now because I am never going through that again. I mean, I won't get into the dirt of it on this show because it's, it's a big, long story, but one day maybe we'll do a show about that, and uh, I'll give you the exclusive on some of that. But that Sweet. it was really horrible what I went through. And um, so for Dream Purple Neon, I just made the movie I wanted to make. I wanted to combine the old-school splatter outrageousness of some of the old days with what I'd learned over the years and make a good story also with characters that you might care about. And I wanted to do it on my own. So like on a credit card is what I, and so we spent like $3,500 making dream purple neon. No one can believe it because it is ambitious as hell. Mm -hmm. It really is one of those movies that everyone pulled together again, because we just wanted to make this thing, the best it could be and we wanted to go places no one had ever gone and you mentioned earlier the connection with nightmare asylum and there is one and the reason what people don't know about it is that connection is because uh, where i wanted that to be like a nightmare world in this movie they really do travel into different dimensions in dream of Purple neon mm-hmm. um i touched on it a little bit in house forbidden secrets because but that's more of a time travel thing but on this one I really wanted it to be like Dante's Inferno. They go down into this basement where this cult is, and the cult has basically brought back this demoness, um, a demon queen of all things, from hell of all places, and they've summoned her. And when they did, it basically transforms this place into her realm. So every corner they turn is another level of hell. And that's why there are so many extremely visual portions of it where they're going through and they're like 
holy crap, man, we're just, we really are getting deeper and deeper into the bowels of hell and different layers and levels. And I kind of tried to design some of those scenes off of different levels of hell that you may read about throughout history and different cultures. Um, you know, like the seventh level, the third level, the fifth level, they all have themes. Um, even, even in Chinese mythology, they have many different levels of hell. And I thought it'd be kind of cool to combine some of those mythologies and ideologies into um, what we see in that basement as it keeps going on and becomes a labyrinth of darkness, really, and crazy stuff. And then, you know, you got these people involved, and there's really no way they can win. And I don't want to give anything away for people who haven't seen it, but they do their damnedest. And uh, do they win or not? I can't really tell you, but there's something to be said about how we ended that movie. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, and... uh I think that's definitely my favorite scene because I am a big fan of Dante's Inferno. Uh, I've always, that's kind of always uh, interested me as well as far as like the different levels and and how uh, well fleshed out they were even though they were only shown for a little bit of time. So I think that's one of the drawing yeah. points of Dreaming Purple Neon. Now, Dreaming Purple Neon, uh, how can people get a hold of that? Is there... Is there any like official way to get a hold of that right now, or is it just kind oh, of? Oh yeah, a... yeah, that's that's released through Unearthed Films. They have it out, and um, you can get it through Amazon or anywhere. It's out there all over the place. And right. the good news is, there's a special version of the film. See, what happened was after I edited the thing, I had I had kind of spaced off because it was so complicated how that movie was put together that I'd forgotten some of the stuff we shot with two cameras. So then I found all these reels of footage that were in that second camera. And I was like, oh, my God, I forgot I had these. So I sat down and I made like a, a complete drive-in version, which kind of cuts back a little bit on the characterization stuff and adds more of the exploitable elements, which is what they actually kind of used to do in drive-ins. So we trimmed back a little bit of that. Instead of losing running time, it's the same running time because I replaced it with more gore more exploitive stuff like nudity and crazy stuff and violence. And so the, that version is coming out on Blu-ray very soon, like here within the next month, that'll be out on Blu-ray and it'll be also through unearthed films. And they're going to do a special deal and you'll probably be able to get that at grindhouse also. But yeah, all that stuff. Um, I also house forbidden secrets is also released through unearthed films. And uh, and they've got a Blu-ray D, uh, DVD combo that is just beautiful. So those those are my two distributors right now: is Wild Eye and and Unearthed for America. And they're doing a fantastic job. And I'm just really really pleased about Dream Purple Neon. It's done pretty well. I'd love to have more people check it out because I do think it's one of our better films and it's very original. And I can also tell you, I, I've never seen any other films kind of like the ones we make lately. They're just kind of all over. I'm not saying that because we make them. I'm just like, even sometimes when I watch it, I'm like, wow, man, it started way over here and ends way over there. And there's no way to kind of tell that it was going to end up there. It just kind of does. And even as a filmmaker, it's like sometimes these things, like Dream Purple Neon, I always say it was a roller coaster that almost went off the rails, but we <laughs> kept it in control. And I don't know how, but it went close, you know. It was pretty nuts. Yeah, I think we all really enjoyed it when we got to check it out. Now, uh, the next one, Bone Hill Road, another one we got to check out at the drive-in. Uh, I actually, I think we got to see Bone Hill Road at the drive-in twice because yeah, we did. They played it at uh, the uh, Pandemonium. Pandemonium. 
And that was also your first um, crowdfunded one, wasn't it, Todd? Yeah, it was. I, I, I still feel weird about doing that because you feel like a beggar on the corner with your hand out going, hey, I need a quarter. And it just feels weird for me. I just don't know because – and it was my first time even experiencing anything like that. And, again, Stephen Byro from Unearthed Films kind of talked me into that, and I'm glad he did because we were able to make the movie kind of we wanted to make. Sure, there were shortcuts because of the funding. You know, we didn't get quite, you know, what we probably could have used for a full-on creature feature. But I was really proud of what we accomplished because I was trying to do a movie – different than anything we'd ever done because every movie I make, I want to be different in some way than the movies we've made before, but also have connections to them. Mm -hmm. And so um, with Bone Hill Road, we didn't have a whole lot of connections, a little bit, a little bit to some of our other movies, but mainly, um, and the connection in this one was to dead things. Um, People will have to figure that one out on their own, but um, one of our older movies, dead things, but I kind of really wanted to, um, I wanted to, tell a story about a mother and daughter and I wanted them to be the focus and about these monsters and about how the ones you think are monsters are not monsters. Like the werewolves are not the monsters in the movie. They, you might think they are, but they're not. The werewolves actually are just like any other animal. They're very neutral. They're just trying to survive. They're trying to eat. They're trying to live. Um, they're not evil per se. Now we may see them as evil because we might be their victims, but they're not evil. Um, but there is another evil in the film, which is stronger than anything the werewolves could ever be, but then the werewolves may end up being the hero. So it's kind of that kind of thing I wanted to do when I was making the movie. And I've read weird, you know, people always have expectations. So they go into the movie and then they're like, well, it wasn't what we expected. And then they either love it or they don't. And um, that's okay with me because I was trying to tell a story and I didn't want to make the same story. I didn't want to make the same thing where some guy got bit or some girl and they turned into a werewolf, blah, blah, blah. I've read things where they said there aren't hardly any werewolves in the movie. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? The whole first part is werewolves. There's werewolves in the middle. And then the, the whole last half of the movie is werewolves. The last, you know, there's a big finale with the whole fall of werewolves. Like Night of the Living Dead only with werewolves. So I'm like, I just don't understand where sometimes people get there. You know, there was no werewolves. Well, did you watch the movie? I mean, I don't know. But we even have a big-ass transformation scene in the movie of a woman turning into a werewolf in day, not daylight, daylight, but like in a brightly lit kitchen. Cause that was our homage to American werewolf. I, I like the fact that he was in a brightly lit room. There was no cutaways, no shadows hiding everything. So we did it the same way on only like uh, 12 cents. <laughs> so it was like, you know, we had to, we had to. <laughs> Hero of ours kind of pulled through. I heard on that uh, Joe Castro. Yep. Joe's a main man. Yep. Yeah. That was really cool to hear that. Yeah, I've known Joe for many, many years, and, and I and he asked me, he just out of the blue sent me a message, hey, Todd, how's the movie going? And I said, and I'm honest, I was blunt. I said, Joe, the movie would be great, but I'm at a real wall. I've hit a wall here with this uh, this transformation. He says, well, tell me about it. So I told him. I sent him over the script pages. We literally had three weeks um, before the movie was supposed to be done. And he says, all right, check the prices on flights. If you can get out here, we can make this happen. So we checked the prices on flights, and Dylan and Antoine and I went out there. We had to recreate the the set in his garage (laughs) where he has a studio, and we we made it happen, and really Joe made it happen. I mean, it was really his expertise um, that that made it happen. You know, I I shot it, and I lit it, and I tried to match it as best I could to the kitchen, 
but it was really his expertise that made that happen the way it did and made the movie. Uh, I, I think it took it from a certain type of movie into a different type of movie. I think that's why that movie ended up in every Walmart in the country is because the production value and the way we did this transformation and the way all the werewolves looked. I also have to thank like midnight studios and all those guys, because everyone pulled together to make these creatures as, as great as they could be on a fraction of the money that they would normally charge because they believed in the project and they loved what we were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the things we walked away with when we first watched at the drive-in where we were all saying, man, that werewolf transformation was awesome. The werewolves in general looked really great too. I mean, yeah, I was really proud of them. The heads, you know, those like GDS effects in England made a couple of those heads for us. And I remember talking to him saying, I wanted to be a, an homage to the Howling and American Werewolf. I want them to be combined into one monster. And he did those those heads with like the you know that you could puppeteer and the animatronic stuff and and that kind of thing. And that was all from GDS effects. That's what he does. He that's. And he, he did a fantastic job. Those werewolf heads, you couldn't see out of them. There was no holes. So, uh, But um, they were absolutely incredible. And some people couldn't handle them. Like we had people playing the werewolves, and they couldn't handle the ones like that because they were too much. They were, they had all, they were too tight. They had all that stuff in them because he had like where you could control the eyes and where you could move the lips and stuff. That was all inside of there. And then they were trying to wear them on their heads, and so they there was not enough room, and they were going claustrophobic on me and freaking out. And they could only be in the werewolf suits we were shooting in the summer. That's 90 degrees, 100 degrees. They could only oh be in those werewolf suits for, you know, seven, eight minutes tops, and that's tops. Um, we had werewolves falling over. One time we had a whole scene with a bunch of werewolves, and one of them starts wavering, and we knew he was going down. And it's just you just have to get him in, and we had, like, this amazing creature crew of people that would – have the fans ready and get the suits off and get them right back on. And they really did a fantastic job and all the werewolf actors and everything. I, I, I put them through the ringer, but they did a fantastic job because that was hard. No one understands how hard it is to make a monster movie till you make one. And I had to learn how to light the damn things because you're lighting an actor, but then when you go to light the werewolf suits, you can't see them. But then if you light the werewolf suits, then the actors are too bright. And you had to figure out how to light both and make it look right in the scene because the suits are made of different materials. You know, we got, like different types of urethane or foam or, you know, whatever. And you're trying to make these things. Oh, it's just a, it was just, it was crazy. What an, what a great experience though. What a great experience. And I think the performances really were good in this movie. And Bone Hill was really about the characters and the mother and daughter carry this movie to an extent that, I mean, I don't think people give them enough credit. You know, I think they really did a good job in the movie. Yeah. And one thing, uh, cause the second time I watched it at the drive-in, you were giving me kind of a live director's commentary. Uh, one of the things I thought was really uh, cool that you did was a lot of the actresses were uh, vegan. And so in the scene where they're having to eat the uh, girl in the bathtub, uh, you used uh, vegan steak. Oh, but... yeah. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did. So that's we just kind of you uh, always. That's kind of you always kind of having a heart for the uh, actors and the crew and everything like that. So that's an, that's another thing that kind of makes you stand out. Now, moving on to Clownado, which we had the privilege of watching. Um, I say you could have just filmed that uh, Dale and Harvey bar scene with linda blair as spider 
and they and you know that could have called it a day but instead you made like this great epic clown sort of film noir sort of exploitation film lit like an italian film it seems where did clownado start i mean how did that what made you decide to do that well i had a script called clowns and mm-hmm. it was an older script i'd done in like the 90s i've always wanted to do a cool clown movie where they're just crazy and just outrageous and just now the difference was that original script basically it still had a witch only they were cursed they were killed and then they came back from the dead as zombie clowns and they still do kind of, but I don't want to give too much away since it's still out there, but they kind of still do, but they're not like zombie zombies. So um, basically what happened was I got a buddy of mine that I was working with and we were joking around about titles and we were making Bone Hill Road at the time. And um, he's like, you need to make Wolf NATO. That, it'll sell because everyone wants to see NATO movies. And we were laughing. And I was like, I'm not going to make Wolf NATO. And so we're joking around. So he just keeps throwing out ideas. And he says, well, let's make Zika zombies. And so we're, we're just joking around about that. And he goes, we've got to get hot topics. We've got to get hot topics. And, of course, living here in the Midwest, it's like Tornado Central. So they're always talking about it. And uh, he's like, they're making the last Sharknado. We've got we to gotta think of a good NATO. And then he's throwing stuff out. Well, then all of a sudden he comes in and he's like, I'll tell you what we need. We need Clown NATO. And I laughed so hard. I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I'm not making a damn movie called Clownado. But then I thought, hold on a minute. I got this clown script. It's actually pretty cool. I always wanted to make a movie about clowns. Maybe maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'll just give it a new title and kind of a fresh rewrite and uh, kind of go with my basic original concept, only kind of elaborate on it, find a way to tie in the tornado aspect and Maybe we can do this. It'll be like an old-school drive-in movie, and it'll tie in. And one thing's for sure, people will talk about the title. Oh, yeah. So I'm like, for sure. but I didn't do it to cash in. I didn't want to cash in on Sharknado because I'm friends with many of the people that worked on Sharknado movies. I wasn't trying to cash in. It was more like it was so ridiculous, and it made me laugh literally for an entire day I laughed about this thing I, because of what he said. I laughed and laughed. I thought, this is just stupid. But I couldn't get it out of my head. So that's what made me go back to it. I was like, I really can't shake this title. And I really kind of like the idea of making this into something. So Clownado was born. And I took that old script and kind of reread it. And I was like, okay, this needs a lot of work. It's clear back in the 90s. But I. I could take what I know now and mix it with what I knew then and which was all the splatter and the exploitation and then bring in some cool characters and actually give it a storyline. And one of the best things I've read ever about this movie was one of the first people who ever saw it wrote to me and he said, you know, this damn movie is way better than it has any right to be with that damn title. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that is really the ultimate compliment because the title makes you think one thing, but when you watch the movie, it's nothing like what you think it's going to be, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, we're glad you, we're glad you made it and decided to go with the name. Uh, we love it. Uh, we're actually going to give our review after this, but Todd, I appreciate you calling. I can't thank you enough. We'll take a quick break and get to our review of Clownado, and we're also going to review Last House on Dead End Street. There you go. All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful evening. 
All right, guys, it's another big announcement from the Skyline Drive-In. With a partnership with Flipside Cinema, we are bringing the Pandemonium Picture Show, which some of you might remember from the last few years, to the Skyline as a monthly event. It's the Pandemonium Picture Show. This is a real grindhouse experience, and it all happens the last Wednesday of July, August, and September. It's, it's three shows that capture uh, the Grindhouse experience. These shows are double features, true Grindhouse experience. The first installment is the last Wednesday of July and it's Basket Case and Anthropophagus. Then in August, Society and Patrick. And then in September, it's Deadbeat at Dawn and Last House on Dead End Street. Those are the double features with all the trimmings of, you would expect from a Grindhouse double feature at the Skyline. The Flipside Cinema guys will be there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Mark your calendars. You're not going to see these kind of double features anywhere else, guys. Hey, Flipside, we're back, and we're going to start our review of Clownado and follow it up with our review of Last House on Dead End Street. So for Clownado, we were able to get an advanced screener, and we were able to all three sit down and kind of watch it, and uh, the right, right away, the picture quality, really good, and we really like the intro yeah um the the clowns were really were really great looking too yeah i know i know you commented while we were watching it about how there were certain clowns that you had you liked more than others and yeah each clown has like their own personality and their own like sort of gimmick i guess Mm -hmm. and so it's kind of cool to like pick your favorite one out and it's not always necessarily the main clown guy even though he did really good Oh yeah, um, I, I thought he did really good. Yeah, I'll 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 second that. He had a funny laugh. Yeah, he the, had a good laugh. The whole movie nice itself kind of had a, a funny um vibe going on there for it. I thought it was good though. Yeah, and to cut the movie. If you're gonna do something ridiculous like Clownado, you should make it more lighthearted, more right. Uh, don't take it too seriously. Yeah, I think one part that we like really laughed at was that um guy. And he's like, you aren't appreciative, Brad. I've taken you to the goddamn circus. Yeah. And she was like this, like, grown-ass chick. Like, she should be appreciative that he took her to the circus. Like, yeah. We were kind of like, yeah. uh, okay. And so without giving too much away, yeah, it's it's not – I wouldn't say it's really at all like a Sharknado, kind of with the tornado aspect. But, like, they use the – so without – like, the, the clowns – they use it to teleport or travel or something like that. Right, yeah. It's sort yeah. of like a supernatural element, too, with like a little witch. Right. It's more like they can control it, whereas in Sharknado, you know, it's a, it's a natural disaster that's occurring. It's a tornado. Yeah, so there's, there's no there's no rhyme or reason to it other than 
Right. You know, it's a tornado. But that's not the case in this. And it's really fitting that it's a tornado, too, because Todd's from Missouri, so that's Tornado Alley. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say the title is where the similarities between Sharknado and Clownado end. Yep. You Pretty know, much. There's nothing yeah. similar about them at all. Mm-hmm. Not in terms of style, story, characters, anything like that. Now, uh, I think some of our favorite parts, if you know what I mean, was the uh, Dale and Fawn Harvey oh, sequence. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, God. Yeah, we were watching that one and just kind of thanking Todd for... <laughs> yeah. putting those on screen but uh and then i love linnea quigley's character as spider oh yeah she has a, a real quick uh cameo and she's really great in it too yeah she's like this badass bar owner mm-hmm. she doesn't give you know she's kind of slapping her women around and everything like that it is a treat i was halfway expecting a linnea quigley's uh character to just uh like pull out a shotgun or something you know oh I got a sawed-off shotgun. Moving on, yeah, the plot, kind of like what Curtis was saying, there's this character, and um, it's kind of like this film noir-type style at the very beginning. Yeah. Actually, that kind of stays with it. They're even wearing, like, the old-time outfits sometimes. They're wearing, like, those um, suspenders. Uh Yeah. One guy is. And this girl was cheating on her husband. And her husband's like a circus performer mm-hmm. a clown and you know from there it kind of evolves into uh the clowns get a little more sinister and um if you're if you've watched uh bone hill road it is a lot more of the older todd sheets kind of stuff because it does seem like he made it a lot more gorier this time whereas yeah. bone hill was kind of more serious and there was more of like a drama with werewolves and yeah so i think i think if you follow this one up with movies like dreaming purple neon and Mm -hmm. you know all that kind of house of forbidden secrets and that kind of stuff you're gonna enjoy this one because it's kind of like curtis said yeah it's like back to the basics again yeah because todd did mention how bone hill road was kind of supposed to be something different he didn't want to just do splatter all over and over again. So, somehow there's like this side story that becomes that ends up actually becoming the main story where you have that group of got people. You have that group of people trying to yeah. escape the town. And the town they filmed in was great too with the old theater and everything mm-hmm. like that. You've got uh, Antoine Steele, I think, as Black Elvis. Yeah, Antoine Steele as Black Elvis. Fucking hilarious. He's great. He really needs to do more stuff, you know. I mean, yeah. he's great. He's just a great guy. Great actor. Yeah, because there's that line where they go, Elvis, get your black ass in the truck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then I really like the scenes where they're, like, um, crawling through the ventilation system. Mm-hmm. Um, really nice, top, uh, tight shots, you know, and everything like that. I was also, I really liked uh, Joel Winecoop's character as well. He's really yes. good at it. Yes, like Joel Winecoop's hilarious. Like an aircraft or, like, a pilot. Yeah. Yeah, all the locations were authentic. I mean, there's like a diner. They filmed in a real diner, I imagine. The bar. And somehow bar. they got like a access to like a museum or something for the airport scene. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. 
which that's pretty impressive. I because this is he said this is one of his lower budgeted movies. So right, and there actually is a clown in the movie that's actually terrifying. And none of us have a clown fear or anything like that, but we were terrified. Oh of the midget shit! Clown. Yeah, he was on this little cooler that was a. Uh, I don't know, some sort of scooter thing, but it looked like a cooler. Yeah, and it that was like... That guy was creepy. It was like battery-powered or something, you know, and he just like chases people around. That was awesome. I love that. Yeah. I think he's the best. He's probably one of the best parts, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then uh, you had the clown titties. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. The clown, she had her titties oh, and yeah. then blood got all over them, and then her titties started eating people. Yeah, I remember Stuff that. Stuff like that. Attack of the killer titties. Yeah, like, that's just, like, gold right there, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the movie, honestly, was a ton of fun. I mean, I had a blast watching it, for sure. I think a lot of people are going to like it. I think it's going to be the uh, movie that gets Todd Sheets more recognition, kind of more yeah, spotlight, um, you know? I wanted to bring that up, too, because I know Mr. Parka, he's kind of a YouTube reviewer. He kind of goes to like Cinema Wasteland and he watches all the Todd Sheets movie. And I actually heard from one of my friends that he was not a very big fan of Bone Hill Road because of the new direction. But this is more of the older stuff that people really like about his older stuff. You know, there's the gore, the ridiculousness, killer titties that eat people, mm. a midget clown, you know, midget clown. Just, just have fun with it. That's what I say, you know. Yeah, that's the thing, too. Like, the movie's just fun. It's just fun to watch. It's fun to watch with your friends. They, they, I, I think it'd be perfect for sci fi. You know? Oh, yeah. I think. Yeah, that's true. They really should pick it up. Yeah, they should. But the movie's getting a lot of recognition on, you know, pretty admirable sites. So that's good. Like, it's on flip side, for God's sakes. I mean, yeah, we're the that's biggest, the pinnacle. We're the of, biggest pod- podcasters around, you know? Yeah. But yeah, so all right, uh, me, Clownado, I gave it two thumbs up. What about you, Harrison? What do you got? What do you think? Uh, I agree. I definitely agree. Um, like we we talked about earlier, um, we kind of talked about how Todd uh, takes an idea and then decides that he's not limited by, you know, what what's around him. Mm-hmm. necessary to produce like the the idea comes first and then and then later comes you know how you can make it a reality so uh, another case where it's you know an ambitious uh film i think i mean he said it himself that you know people told him he didn't have the the budget to make it but he just says you know fuck it i got the idea i want to make the idea happen so i definitely respect that i have to give it to uh killer clown titties thumbs up because of that it's it's the ambition it's you know it's not going to appeal to every single person that's no. not the point the point is i mean he had a goal he accomplished it he had a vision he did it with a small budget i mean but really like a movie like clownado i feel like it at, at least appeals to more people than like a trauma movie yeah yeah it's not as vol. it's not as like vulgar and just completely ridiculous as as a like a trauma film yeah yeah and that's not a jab at trauma that's just yeah it's more appeal it's more appealing i think to more to more people than trauma it's something you could see maybe your mom watching you know (laughs) late at night you know she accidentally left it on the sci-fi channel oh yeah well i caught grand grand watching it the other night (laughs) 
So I don't know. I, I think it I think it fares better than most independent films as far as like I think it could appeal to a large group of people. Yeah. Not to everybody, certainly not to everybody, but at least to like I guess what you'd call like a sci fi group. Mm-hmm. Maybe. And then the also people the that horror. would watch, you know, some of the straight to video stuff or the sci fi channel or, you know, Comet T V mm-hmm. or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, they Shutter. would dig this. Yeah, Shudder, I mean. But it's like, it's kinda like um it's appealing I, I think a clown NATO is the most like entry level Todd Sheets movie. It hits the mark, I think, for those people, for that group of people. Yeah. So check it out. Uh, I would recommend it to everybody. I told my mom about it, you know. Has she watched it? No. Well, it's not out yet. Oh. You yeah. Know? I wasn't going to share the screener with her either. You didn't You didn't betray tr- Todd's trust? Nope. That's a good, that's a good man. We don't do that. So. We're professionals. We, the only people that watched that screener were me, Harrison, and Curtis. I showed it to my dog, too. Curtis's dog watched it. So, yeah, check it out. When it, it's gonna, it's coming out soon, September. You can pre-order it. And Wild Eye releasing, I think we said. It's yeah. gonna put that out. I don't know if it's getting a wide release or not. Like at Walmart, we'll have to ask. I hope it does. Yeah. I I think this of any movie should get a wide release of mm-hmm. of Todd's. But like, um, no disrespect to Bone Hill Road, but I like this one better. And Bone Hill got oh, a, yeah. a a bigger a big release. Yeah. This is my favorite Todd Sheets film in a while. Yeah. But uh, you can also still crowdfund it, I believe, on Indiegogo. Probably. They usually keep that open. Probably, I think yeah. you did. So I would recommend doing that because there's actually this deal. I think it's $25, maybe 30 but you get a signed poster, a signed Blu-ray, and a signed DVD. That would be worth it. That would totally be worth it. I know it's hitting like the festival scene right now. So if you can get that get in, you know, early before it's released. Yeah. That uh, would definitely be worth it. Yeah, cuz like usually Todd Sheets films that get released, it's hard to find the Blu-ray. Oh yeah. You usually just get the DVD. Like at Walmart, Bone Hill I I don't think you can buy Bone Hill on DVD. I don't think or so. Blu-ray. I mean. Uh Wild Eye and all those companies uh, even like um James Bickers films to a certain degree. You know, with him, it's more of the Blu-ray than the DVD because he self-distributes, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so, if they're going to print out, a, you know, a thousand Blu-rays and a thousand DVDs, they have to get a certain limited number of minimum order number. And so, it just doesn't sell enough for a thousand DVDs. So, he just does the Blu-ray. But the companies, I guess Walmart must like the DVDs better for some of these movies. I don't really know what the what the deal is with that. But Yeah. Probably so... The, you might want to get on the bandwagon now. Yeah, get the Blu-ray because there's probably not going to be a be a or yeah, get the Blu-ray because there's probably not going to be a wide Blu-ray if it gets. Yeah, and you're gonna want this movie on Blu-ray because it looks really good. I I I think Todd was telling us he shot on 4K, so he's using those 4K cameras. So get it on Blu-ray. You don't want to get the DVD. But yeah, so that'll kind of end our review of Clownado. And now we're going to move on to something completely different. Uh, Last House on Dead End Street. Uh, Last House on Dead End Street is a film by Roger Watkins. It uh, is actually available now. The DVD was super rare and still is. 
I think it goes for like two hundred dollars or something crazy like that. Yeah, I imagine it's long out of print, right? But it's a great DVD. A uh, buddy of ours, Ryan, has that, and uh, it's got it's chock full of special features. There's actually a, a hidden Easter egg in the DVD where Roger Watkins is being interviewed by James Van Bedber. So, I mean, that alone would be worth it. But so if you want to buy it for a reasonable price. Uh, what you can do for about 20 bucks is you can go on to any of your your favorite uh, distributor and get Corruption on Blu-ray. Now, be careful with that because there's a Peter Cushing film called Corruption. Uh, that's not the one we're talking about. This one is like a porno and it's directed by Roger Watkins. On that Blu-ray, when you're on the main menu, if you press down... 11 times this inverted cross appears and when you select that you get last house on dead end street now it's the full movie the picture quality is just the 35 millimeter print there's nothing they haven't done any restoration to it so the picture quality isn't the greatest but you do get to watch the film for 20 bucks that's pretty good and I actually didn't mind the picture quality with the grain. It's got all yeah, the film grain. It's cool. It's definitely mm-hmm. I have cool. to agree. Yeah. I agree with that. And that's the I, I've seen this movie probably like 10, 11 times. So if anyone hasn't heard of it or seen it or anything, what's what's a brief summary for it? Yeah, so you have uh, Roger Watkins is the star in it. He's He wrote, directed, and starred in it. He's playing a character called Terry Hawkins. And he's trying to make he wants to get back into the film industry previously he was making pornos they weren't really getting him anywhere and so he decided he needed to do something new uh the idea he had was to make to actually kill people on camera so make like a snuff film uh have a plot and everything but the kills are actually real and really it kind of fits in well too not to interrupt but um you know that's kind of what roger corman not, not not he didn't actually kill people but I'm saying, you know, he looked for something that was bizarre, weird, strange that he could show. And that's yeah. how Grindhouse movies were born. Yeah. And speaking of Grindhouse movies, like this is like the textbook definition of a Grindhouse film. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I agree. And uh, it's got some great lines in it. Uh, wh- one of the ones that me and Curtis were kind of laughing at and kept saying over and over again where he's he's over that girl and he's like i'm directing this fucking movie i'm directing this movie i'm directing this movie yeah and then i also love the uh, monologues especially that very first one at the beginning um it doesn't really go anywhere but you know you got this guy who's making his own film and you can always kind of tell when a director is the actor because he's like in love with himself so like he just has this shot where Roger Watkins is just walking around. Yeah. You know? And he's sitting there yeah, talking that's true. and he's like, people say, do this, do that, do this, do that. Lights out, lights out. Eight, no later than eight. No time for TV to go to the movies. Yeah, he's saying lines like that. Mm-hmm. Which kind of reminded you of, because uh, you brought it up, but I said, I said it reminded me of Maniac, but you said Taxi Driver, and that, mm-hmm. that hit the spot right there. Maniac and Taxi Driver. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, I kind of like, like we were saying with the picture quality too, is like, I've always seen it like that, so it's going to be weird when, um, 
vinegar syndrome actually puts out the actual rest restored version yeah weird but that's another thing vinegar syndrome put this out i forgot to mention that yeah so usually what these companies like to do as well is they like to keep some of the film green but it'll still be weird because it'll be color corrected i assume yeah and a lot of the film green will still be gone there'll just be some left yeah but uh, the movie's a bit controversial, especially in today's eyes. Uh, there's a scene where a lady is in blackface and she's being whipped, and all these white people are standing around watching and laughing. Um, a lot of nudity. Lots there's a rape of, uh, scene. Lots of uh, vulgar language. Yep. Not PC language. Yeah, a lot of gore. Uh, that mask that um, Terry Hawkins wears is legendary too that big huge statue looking mask looks almost like zeus or something a greek yeah it almost kind of reminded me of stage fright mm-hmm. but yeah uh if you definitely get the corruption blu-ray now the movie corruption which is what the blu-ray you know that's what it's mainly trying to push but corruption is a hardcore porno that roger hawkins made and there's really not much of a reason to watch it. Uh, I would recommend Her Name Was Lisa, which is another Roger Watkins porn. It actually has a really good plot. But Corruption just kind of is just sex scene after sex scene. It, it There's kind of a plot, but it's very, like, I don't know, basic and not worth your time. It is worth mentioning, too, that I, I read, I'm not sure if they've gone through the first print run, but they did give a disclaimer, I think, on Diabolic DVD that they're not sure how long they're going to be able to keep putting them out. So I'm not sure if that's just the first pressing thing for Corruption or if the next pressing is not going to have it. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, I get it now. Because yeah. um, you guys got it, uh, Charlie and Harrison got it, and they both got uh, Last House on Dead End Street with theirs. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if they're going to restore it, it doesn't seem like they would, you know, keep pushing it. Exactly, yeah. Because the more people that buy Corruption, the less people that are going to buy the restored version because they already have Corruption. Yeah, and... Uh, or not Corruption, uh, Last House on Dead End Street. With... Uh, one cool thing about tying in Last House on Dead End Street with Jim Van Bever, uh, there's a movie that was made called The Cuckoo Clocks from Hell, I believe. I've only seen that once. Uh, Jim Van Bever plays Terry Hawkins in the movie. So it's almost kind of like a sequel to Last House on Dead End Street. That's bizarre. It was made in like 2010-ish. And, uh, it was directed by uh, Ron Atkins, who's an Ohio director, I believe. Um, makes some pretty, really, really low-budget films. But he had Jim Van Beber reprise the role of Terry Hawkins from Last House on Dead End Street. So that's kind of how you have your cool... Uh, Jim Van Beber's a huge fan of Roger Watkins' work, so that's, that's your kind of tie-in with somebody that you know a lot of people know. Because... Jim Van Bever's a pretty big yeah. hitter these days, especially with Arrow releasing Deadbeat at Dawn. He's really only done, like, uh, that I know of, the two big ones, The Manson Family and 
Deadbeat at Dawn, but people love him because of both of those, more so Deadbeat at Dawn. Yeah, and he did some really good uh, shorts. Yeah, yeah, you can actually buy the shorts, I think. Yeah. Through uh, yeah. Massacre Video, I think they've got them. Right. There's like a box set or something like that, but... Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Last House on Dead End Street's a classic. I fucking love that movie. And when I found out Corruption had it, had to get it. And you can... I would recommend getting the Corruption Blu-ray off Grindhouse Video. It has the best price. I don't even think it was on Amazon, was it? Um... Maybe it was. I'm not sure. They only had one copy left on uh, Grindhouse releasing or Grindhouse video. There you go. That sh- goes to show you right there. You need to get on it. Hopefully, it's still there. Uh, if not, check D- Diabolic. Check uh, check Deep Discount. Amazon. Have Amazon be your last. Yeah, it, they don't need your money. To. I mean, it's kind of like. The other distributors are faster and cheaper, it seems like. Unless you got Amazon Prime, you know. You can get it in two days, but... Hey. So yeah, Last House on Dead End Street. Must watch for anybody who's a fan of exploitation films, grindhouse films, anything like that. You gotta check it out. Because it's a classic. Yep, two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. What about you, Harrison? Would You, you got two thumbs up, or... I got two thumbs up on it. I was uh, I was a little skeptical because, like, you know, when, when there's a lot of hype about something, mm-hmm. you know, your kind of instincts are like, okay, well, maybe it's overblown, but no. It was really fucking good. Yeah, and I, a... I personally like the grittiness of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a super uh, – it's, it's one of those, like, mystery films. Only up till recently did anybody even know who directed the movie. There's a big – thing about nobody knew who directed it nobody knew where it was from it was kind of like this lost gem and yeah i even read um that there was like rumors that the killings were real like as a urban legend or whatever yeah i always love that i always love when movies have sort of like these urban legends to them yeah it's like um sort of like with silent deadly night too or whatever or uh, cannibal holocaust yeah put them on trial yeah so you know I said it once I'm going to say it again Get go out and get it as soon as you can because like Curtis said they might redo it and they might get rid of the last house on Dead End Street yeah I'm curious Does any? do you guys know when um, have they said anything new about that restoration from Vinegar Syndrome the new Blu-ray I haven't heard anything I know when it comes out it's probably going to be like $40 oh yeah We've yeah. Been talking about this for how many years? Yeah. Vinegar Syndrome's pretty pricey, and this is going to be a big title for them. I know they've been working on it for a long time, from what I hear. I'm I'm hearing it's being pretty difficult to restore. Yeah. But I gotta assume that they gotta have it soon. Yeah. Well, that'll end our show, everybody. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. We have a uh, uh, unboxing coming up of a Blu-ray that recently got released by Grindhouse. Yep. That's probably all we'll say. So anyways, guys, we love you. 
and we'll see you on the flip side. some filming we're gonna we're gonna create a new brutal masterpiece the battle of marshall stack it's gonna happen right there in your backyard so it's gonna be fun <laughs>